Welcome to episode 17 of season two of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shrout. Thank you to our top Patreon subscriber, Darren Monk, and to all the other Patreons, Adam Hahn, Christine Welchel, Isaac Rennert, Andrew Darby, Cody Wilson, Ben Rothenberg, Patrick Friel, Jeremy Horwitz, Dargan Ware, Joe Graziak, Anthony Garino, Adam Zelani, Peter Broda, David Croson, and Mike Jesiorski. And to anyone listening, your name could go here as well. Just sign up at patreon.com slash recreational thinking. Our guests today are Matt Jackson, Jenna LaFleur, and Ben Rothenberg. Remember that order. It's arbitrary, but it'll be consistent throughout the game. So if we could now go in that order, each of you could briefly state where you're Zooming from and approximately one sentence about yourself, starting with Matt. Hi, my name is Matt Jackson. I'm from Washington, D.C. I'm currently Zooming from Washington, D.C. I am about to start a graduate program at the University of Chicago starting this fall. And between now and then, I am learning things and going places and enjoying life. Awesome. Jenna. Hi, I'm Jenna LaFleur. I am also from DC and Zooming from DC. I'm, I am, well, I've, I've been active in the crossword sphere for a while, and I've recently started getting more into online quizzing as well with the, you know, advent of OQL and COQL and all that. All right. And Ben. I'm Ben Rothenberg. I'm also from Washington, DC, and the third wheel on this undefeated trivia powerhouse of the three of us uniting. One for one so far, but that's flawless as far as I can tell. I am currently zooming from a fairly far east of the metro area of DC, just outside the walls of the Vatican here in Rome. Cool. Yeah. As in episode 26 and episode 32, I'm taking an a unified quizzing team and then pitting them against each other in hopes of destroying their unity. Wait, no. Um <laughs> wasn't supposed to say that last part out loud. Okay, this game's in four rounds, one individual and three specialists. First round, I called it three R's round. It allows me to reduce, reuse, and recycle prior material. These questions mostly serve as a warm-up in scare quotes, not in the sense of being easy, but just in the sense of, you know, kind of throwing people into the deep end, getting their minds working, getting them used to my writing style. The questions will also be worth a tenth of a point as tiebreakers if necessary. Only once been necessary before. And also if two people tie in this round, it won't actually break a tie between them but I call them tiebreakers anyway. So for this round only, you will only play as individuals. So if the first person, the question is directed at misses, it'll go to the second and the third if the first two miss. So the further back you are, less of a direct shot you have, the more time you have to think. Some potential answers could get taken off the table as well. And we'll rotate. So each of you will get to answer three questions in first position, three in second, three in third. Your rules will change after that. I will explain that when it happens. I will also introduce you to what I think we're now stuck with calling the Jimmy Lee rule that you uh, you just basically have to offer an answer. Uh, you, you'll be penalized for passing unless you give you know reasonable explanation for why you don't want to venture a guess. But in general, there's no penalty for guessing. So you know it's always to your advantage to offer a guess. And just a general reminder, the content of the podcast is you talking through your thinking process. So don't internalize your thinking. Feel free to share interesting connections, let the audience in on whatever you're thinking about, but you don't have to talk just for the sake of talking. We don't need filler. And I will be pasting the content or I'll be pasting the text of each question into the chat as soon as I'm done reading it. So you can follow along there as well. All right. So if everyone's ready, we'll begin with Matt in first position on question one. Mm -hmm. At the 1974 Primetime Emmys, all three nominees in the Outstanding Music Composition for a Series category, Don B. Ray, Bruce Broughton, and Morton Stevens, were nominated for scoring episodes of what detective series? Stevens won the award for Hookman, an episode built around a villainous guest appearance by real-life handless private eye J.J. Arms, or Armis. Okay, so I'm not great at TV from before I was born. 
but thinking through what detective shows were around back then and that might have sort of oddly anatomical villains or just sort of memorable people. Am I allowed to like vacillate between two answers on the recording or should I not? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm thinking yeah. about the Rockford Files and I'm thinking about Columbo. I'm going to just know my quiz master and guess that this is Columbo. Okay. I kind of figured someone might go that way again, kind of knowing what my tastes are, but it's not the correct answer. Alas. So, I'll pass to Jenna. So like Matt, I am also not very good at TV from before I was born and I'm, I'm even younger than Matt. So that, that is a whole extra level of unfamiliarity that I have with the subject matter of this question. But given that, and since I don't really have any good guesses, I'll just, I'll just steal Matt's other guess and say the Rockford Files. All right. Again, both shows, I think that were on the air at that time, or actually maybe a Rockford Files started in 74, but that, that decade at least, and both detective series. So both very good guesses, but not correct. I'll pass to Ben. Yeah, I don't have great guesses. I can name a detective show from this era, at least, I think. So maybe roughly, I'm not sure it actually was running in 74. But knowing there was some, this is probably not great, but disability themes, I'm going to go with Ironsides. Well, it's, it's Ironside, no S at the end. Okay. But, but uh, yeah, that- Multiple that, episodes of Ironsides. Ironsides, plural. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. That, uh, I believe, went until 75. So it, it fits within the time frame. Started in the 60s, just a year after its star ended, Perry Mason. The correct answer is also a show that started in the 60s, but really sort of is associated with the 70s because it ran that entire decade, actually, ending in 1980. So spanning all the 70s and a very- I mean, you know, I've watched a lot of these 70s detective shows, but the one that really stands out for its excellent use of music, also having a theme song that's, you know, very famous and, and kind of popular even outside of the show, it was called Hawaii Five-0. Hmm. Didn't know ah. that was that late. Okay. Yeah. And J.J. Armas is all very fascinating person. Even back in the 70s, when he first got famous, there was an article in Texas Monthly talking about sort of trying to disentangle his real life from the tales he spun about himself. But even when I was living just about five years ago, when I was living in El Paso, there was a feature about him on the local, or I was living near enough to El Paso that they were the nearest affiliate. There was a feature about him on the local news. He's still sort of a figure in El Paso. All right. Next question starts with Jenna in first position. Between 1887 and 1946, Alabama was represented in the U.S. Congress, either the House or the Senate, by at least one man with what surname? Though those men were all related, ironically, the most famous member of this family was a non-politician woman. Hmm, okay. So I'm just, I'm just thinking like, okay. So non-politician women who had famous male relatives in in the south my my first thought would be beecher you know harriet beecher stowe and henry ward beecher but i'm i I don't i don't think henry ward beecher was in congress maybe maybe he was and i just i just don't remember that yeah i'm just i'm just trying to think like yeah i'm i'm not oh okay I'm just thinking, I know that on Alabama's state quarter is on, on the back, there's a, a picture of Helen Keller. So I, I know that she is a famous woman from Alabama who wasn't in politics. And that time period is roughly accurate. So I think I, I think I might guess Keller. Yeah. So when I've asked this question before, that's been a very popular guess. So I, I definitely thought that someone might guess it. And I mean, I see your logic there. Good guess, but not correct. Pass to Ben. 
Man, I was really excited to guess Helen Keller. Okay, so I now have to rethink. I feel like Sullivan is too close to be the right answer. But do I have anything better than that? Because I really thought Jenna had it and I had it with Keller. All right, let's, yeah, let's just say Sullivan. I can't, I'm not going to have a whole new train of thought in this time. Fair enough. Again, I see our logic there. Good guess, but not correct. Matt? So I knew this pretty immediately. I've talked about this answer with my friend Lynn, who runs the excellent current events newsletter, You Ought to Know. The correct answer is Bankhead, as in, uh, his name was Joseph Bankhead, was Speaker of the House, I believe, during the Jim Crow Democrats era, and then Tallulah Bankhead was the actress. Yeah, so it was actually, her father was William Bankhead, the Speaker of the House, and uh, I think John B. Bankhead and John Bankhead II were also at various times in either the House or the Senate. But yeah, that's correct. I'm sure Lynn appreciates the plug. She's also twice been on this podcast and one of my favorite guests. All right. So this round's definitely not going to be a shutout. Always nice to have someone on the board. And we'll begin with Ben in first position on this question. A novus homo who held major military or administrative posts under Vespasian, Domitian, Nerva, and Trajan, Sextus Julius Frontinus is remembered today for a treatise about the engineering of what kind of structure? Okay. Well, when in Rome, you should know things about these people. Major novus homo. A new gay. Um, I, I don't, I'm not sure I, I really know much about this person or what that means. I, ugh, it's remembered today for a truth of the engineering, what kind of structure. Hmm. And there's a lot of structures. They build things. Some of them are still here in Rome. I don't really have anything to guess beyond knowing what they built a lot of here. So I'm going to say not very informed aqueduct. And you will say that correctly. You got it. Oh boy. Yes, I, I actually actual, knew a lot about the topics. So the actual definition of a novus homo is basically a man who was the first in his family to achieve a high position. So no, oh, not, okay. you know, not depending on family connections. But I like your definition as well. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Matt, again, in first position on this question. Confusingly, what do Italians... I did not I did not realize you would be in Italy, Ben, so I didn't actually <laughs> this was not a deliberate Italian theme, but I've been discovering how many themes keep popping up in these episodes. So all right. Confusingly, what do Italians call the German city of Munich, Matt? I have also heard this question before. I believe this one from uh, Brian Lipinski, who's an excellent host of the DC area, whom all three of us competed on. The answer is Monaco, which is confusing because it's also a country. Right. If, they, if it really needed to differentiate, I think they would say Monaco di Bavaria or something like that. But I definitely found one article about someone who was supposed to meet someone in Monaco and went to the wrong one thousands of miles away. So it is genuinely confusing. Yeah. And I'm sure Brian also appreciates that shout out. All right. Jenna now in first position on this. One of this man's sisters is the Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court. Another is an actress who starred in TV shows like Murder One, The West Wing, In Plain Sight, and The Kids Are All Right, the latter of which I really liked, even though it only ran one season. He himself may be best known as Rashida Jones's writing partner on projects like Celeste and Jesse Forever and Toy Story 4, but he also won an Oscar alongside Michael Gauvier for the 2020 tear-jerking animated short film, If Anything Happens, I Love You. Name him. Well, okay. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not pulling anything out of the ether on this one. Yeah, let's see. Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court. I don't know. Only, you know, female name in Michigan politics I can think of is Gretchen Whitmer, but she's, you know, obviously not the Supreme Court justice. Let's see. 
I'm trying to I'm trying to think of like names I would associate with Rashid Jones and also not coming up with anything. I you know, I might I might just go for might just go for a, a, a lucky Johnson here and say Johnson. All right. Yeah, that strategy has definitely paid off on this podcast many times, but uh, it won't on this question. So I'll pass to Ben. Yeah, I don't have much better than that. Never maybe play slightly higher percentage and go Smith, but let me no, I don't. I don't know Rashida Jones as a writer. Actually, I didn't. I, wasn't, I just know her as an actress. So I'm not sure of any writing credit she would have. Yeah, I don't think it's her husband. I know who that is, but that's not. He's not best known for these things. So I will just say Smith, with not much more confidence than Jeff. Again, good strategy, but not correct, Matt. So I don't recognize most of these entertainment properties, and of the various Supreme Courts I followed cases from in the aftermath of the last election, I was just not paying enough attention to Michigan. So I'm going to try and go in through the West Wing. And you mentioned kids in another title. So thinking about who was a kid on the West Wing, I think Elizabeth Moss played the president's daughter on that. So I'm going to hope that she has a sibling and that sibling's name is also Moss. So my guess is Moss. Hmm. She does have a sibling. I hope they're not as into Scientology as she is. <laughs> but um, all right, I see your logic there. Decent guess. But yeah, I guess the way in and not probably the actress was uh, the best way. Uh, he actually, he's also an actor and he did have a recurring role on In Plain Sight, which presumably he got through his sister, who was the main star of that show. Her name is Mary McCormack. His name is Will McCormack. All right. All right. All right. Ben in first position on this. See Us Coming Together, a Sesame Street special, aired in 2021 around Thanksgiving, and as part of its celebration of diversity, featured appearances by several celebrities of Asian and Pacific Islander ancestry. One of those was what Canadian actress, at 18 already a veteran of the Descendants and To All the Boys franchises, who is also known for her starring roles on the series Odd Squad and Zoe Valentine. Gosh, I don't think I can name an Asian actress that young. Uh, Canadian Asian extras, more specifically. Oh boy. I no, I don't think I have any guess here. Now that fits the criteria. I've not seen to all the boys. No, so I'm going to stop wasting everyone's time and go with Wong. All right. Decent guess, but not correct. Matt. So I only know one Asian Canadian actress of Gen Z. And it's the star of Never Have I Ever, my Trey Ramakrishnan. So that's going to be my guess. All right. Good guess again, but not correct. So, Jenna, on your form, you boasted that if I had you on the show, you would be my youngest contestant. So <laughs> let's find oh. out how in touch you are with, with the youth. Yeah. Unfortunately, I, I, haven't, I haven't watched much Disney Channel stuff in, in quite a long time. But, yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't really been paying attention to tv lately unfortunately <laughs> yeah i i really don't know i'll i'll say chang and save us a lot of deliberation all right yeah so again even though she is of asian ancestry she you know like a decent number of asian people doesn't have a particularly asian sounding last name actually a last name i associate with a kind of terrible character in catch 22 which isn't her fault of course but um her name is anna cathcart okay all right, Matt in first position. We entered the last cycle of these. So each of you will be in first position one more time. So starting with Matt, in March 2022, Moshe Porat, former dean of Temple University's Fox School of Business and Management, was sentenced to 14 months in prison. He and his subordinates are the first people ever convicted of committing fraud with what specific objective? 
Hmm. So Temple University, I think, is in like the Philadelphia area. I'm not sure if this is a thing that if the business school part is because it has to do with being in charge of a school or because it's something involving the type of fraud that it is. I know there's been a bunch of stories swirling around about admissions type procedures lately and changes to those and equity and lack thereof. So I'm going to guess this involves something like like admission, like rejecting students or like not admitting students to one university. I don't know how best to form that as a guess. That is basically kind of the right level of specificity, but as satisfying a thought as that might be sometimes <laughs> for some be sent to jail for that. It's not correct. So pass to Jenna. So my, my first thought when I read the question was first people ever convicted of something that, I mean, you know, there has, there has been a long history of, you know, people getting convicted of all sorts of stuff. So I, I feel like this must be something that like has only come into existence recently. So like nobody has had the chance to commit fraud to do this before. So I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to guess committing fraud to like acquire NFTs or something. Yeah. I'll, I'll say, I'll say to acquire NFTs. Okay. Wasn't sure where you were going after that initial intro, but yeah, you, uh, you ended up going in an incorrect direction. So I'll pass to Ben. I was also thinking about similar things like, yeah, this is certainly a proud tradition of crime, certainly in the greater Philly area, which is where Temple is. So I will say, what I was going to say, I'll stick with, it's just something along the lines of like fraud applying for like government stimuluses related to COVID-19 pandemic. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I see that logic there. Those are all good guesses, but this this was the first case of criminal a conviction for criminal fraud specifically to raise one school's in collegiate rankings. Uh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Rejecting kids can help with that. It can, yes. But uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. Jenna in first position on this question. Morrissey shot the video for his debut solo single, Suedehead, in Fairmount, Indiana, as a tribute to what man who grew up in Fairmount and is buried there? Coincidentally, the other major celebrity from Fairmount is a cartoonist who happens to share this man's initials. Okay. Fairmount, Indiana. Cartoonist from Indiana, first thought is Jim Davis, creator of Garfield, who is, you know, notably from Indiana. I think like Garfield is canonically set in Muncie, although I, I don't I don't know whether that's like ever been confirmed in the strip or just by, you know, word of God. So I Assuming, assuming that the other major celebrity is Jim Davis. So somebody, somebody with the initials JD who grew up in Fairmont, Indiana and is buried there. Okay, I'm just, could this be, okay. I'm thinking this might be James Dean. That's my guess, James Dean. And that is both correct and some information about Garfield. I didn't know. So. <laughs> Work. All right, everyone's on the board now. Very good. All right, and last question of this round for the rules change begins with Ben in first position. Dava Sobel followed up her 1995 horological classic, Longitude, the true story of a lone genius who solved the greatest scientific problem of his time. I always wanted that subtitle for a book about me, but I guess it's been taken. (laughs) With the 1999 Pulitzer-nominated biography of Sister Maria Celeste. Specifically, that book focused on the early 17th century correspondence between Sister Maria Celeste and her father. Who was her father? Okay, so this is another Vatican-adjacent question for me here. The nun. 
Um, let's see. Maria Celeste. Early 17th century between Maria Celeste and her father. So Maria Celeste sounds Italian again. Uh, a father around that time. It's going to be embarrassing if this is far off, but I am just going to say in Italian from that era, I will say Galileo. Yeah, Sister Maria Celeste, before she entered the nunnery, was Virginia Galilei, the daughter of oh, Galileo. Boy. Celeste, sort of starry name, too. Yeah, ah, there yeah. you go. Good, good point, yeah. In high school, I was in a production of Rex Galileo, in which she is a character, and it does depict her as, in fact, I think one of the, I played two characters, one of which was like a monk who was like looking after her in the nunnery, although the story of how she ended up there is fictionalized in the play. But yeah, good answer. All right, so a fairly high scoring around. More than 50% of those questions got answered, and the score is currently Matt 0.2, Jenna 0.1, Ben 0.2. Good job, team. So far, so good. All right, yeah. so all right, so now we enter the not all that hard round. In this round and all successive rounds, each of you will be given three specialist questions related to your categories, with a caveat not intended to be a fair comprehensive test of your knowledge of them. The questions may relate directly or obliquely. Keep everyone on their toes. I won't reveal the categories up front, though they will likely become evident as we go on. Before you can answer, your opponents will get to work together, try and steal the points from you. You'll only get a chance to answer for a point if your opponents miss. If I pass the question over to you without telling you if your opponent got it right, if you know for certain they did, you can just confirm. Otherwise, it's in your interest to lock in a different answer, since if you just copy their answer, there's no way you're getting points. There may sometimes be bonus questions. If a question is stolen from, there may be a bonus attached to it. They're not attached to every question. They're kind of quasi-randomly sprinkled in. They'll be worth half as many points as to steal. They'll be related to the question itself. They won't necessarily be related to your specialist category. They won't necessarily be at the same level of difficulty as the question they're attached to. So these questions are not all that hard. They'll be worth two points as a steal, one as a specialist, one as a bonus. And now and for the rest of the game, points will go to both stealers, even if only one knows the answer. One of many ways in which these outcomes are determined by luck in addition to skill. All right. So, you know, again, these are, it's, it's meant to be a kind of a fun game. Don't, yeah, nothing more than I'm that. having fun. I'm having fun at least. All right. So we will begin now with Jenna and Ben to try and steal from Matt. All right. Everyone ready? Yep. Okay. Once a rising star in the field of sociology, whose PhD committee at Princeton included Paul DiMaggio and Cornell West, among others, which woman's academic reputation cratered due to criticism of her 2014 ethnographic book, On the Run, Fugitive Life in an American City? Raised by sociolinguist William Leboff and Gillian Sankoff, she uses the surname of her biological father, a pioneering Canadian sociologist whose sister, Frances Bay, was a prolific character actress known for appearances on Happy Days, Twin Peaks, and Seinfeld. Oh, gosh. Okay. Okay, let's see. I I don't I don't know much about sociology, unfortunately. Um, nope. Yeah, I mean, William Leboff is a name that I recognize from his work in linguistics, but I don't know the name of you know any of his any of his children. Um, no, and I, I don't know Frances Bay as a, as a actress yeah. either. If she has another surname that we're supposed to possibly yeah. latch onto, that's not. That's not, I'm not hitching anything to that wagon either. Um, yeah. So auspicious okay. start. Um, yeah. Let's see. <laughs> um, all right. So criticism of her 2014 ethnographic book, On the Run, Fugitive Life in an American City. So I, I don't, I don't remember, I don't remember ever hearing about this book. No. Yeah. 
don't. I'm hoping that his 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 yeah. theme is is cratered reputations rather than sociology. That will help later on, but I'm not sure. But I don't I don't really have anything. Yeah, me neither. Of, of any, I, yeah, I just I don't know. I actually I had a minor in sociology, well, criminology in college, but graduated before this 2014 scandal and wasn't really much. You know, wasn't much for the water cooler gossip about things happening in other schools. To my detriment, as it turns out. So yeah, I got I got nothing. <laughs> There's another. We did use it. We already used our lucky Smith and and Johnson. And if you want to go like Jones or something, Williams. Well, I mean, we we I think we can keep using Smith and Johnson until an answer okay. comes up that actually has one of those one of those so, names. So Janet, I'm going to designate you to pick which of those two we're going to go with here. Let's go. Let's go, Smith. All right. Yeah, I'm glad you said you were familiar with William Labov because. If you weren't some of your questions, you would not have a fun time with it all. <laughs> but all right, Matt. Okay, so I actually wrote a question about this woman for ACF Nationals this year, which is one of the two major college quiz ball championships. So her father is Irving Goffman, the Canadian sociologist who wrote Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. And her name, the author of On the Run is Alice Goffman. Yeah, there aren't a ton of questions about Francis Bay and ACF for some reason. <laughs> But yes, that's correct. Matt and Ben now to try and steal from Jenna. Due to the practice of double banking, what do the Doctor Who episodes Love and Monsters, Blink, and Turn Left have in common? I mean, Blink is the one that everyone tells you to watch first if you haven't seen Doctor Who yet. And it is in fact the only Doctor Who episode I have seen. But I'm pretty sure that's not the answer. Do we know Um, what double banking is? I guess is my question. I don't. I mean, I know it like... I get the sense that it's something like a double header or like they film two episodes and like they save one for many years later in case they like run out of budget or something. Like my guess is something like that. Hmm. Like they maybe have like- Yeah, two episodes filmed concurrently maybe. Yeah, or like they're the only ones set in a certain city or like, like the weird thing I know about Blink is I think the, I think the like secondary character is Carrie Mulligan who has since went on to fame and like Mm -hmm. promising young woman and other things. Like Mm -hmm. my naive guess would be like they have Carrie Mulligan in them, but like- I don't have anything better than that. That doesn't seem like there's any hint towards that in here unless yeah. we know that she's like done some sort of yeah. dubious accounting that could be called so, double banking. Let's maybe think about something that like they maybe have like a common setting. Like they're all set in like the yeah. US, like set in DC perhaps. What if they've, so, so I know, so Doctor Who obviously, I, I was not surprised one of Jenna's categories. Uh-huh. I am wondering if it could have more than one doctor in it. I don't I know think Blake they, has they have more like data tenants. Because I, I, that is, I have seen that episode. I don't remember where it's set. I do remember it is just David Tennant. So I think that's not right. Do you remember anything else? Remember about that episode? That could be. He's like recorded on a television screen a lot of the time. And I'm not sure you actually see him in person outside of that. So maybe it's just like, he doesn't appear outside of like a recording of him. I don't know how you'd say that in a way that's like a meaningful answer. But like she watches a recording where he tells her like, don't blink, do this, do that. So we say like the, the doctors don't appear in them or something like the along doctors those lines? don't appear outside of like pre-recorded footage. Okay. Well, if you want to, yeah, if you have some way to phrase that more elegantly or okay. as elegantly so, as you just did. And I wanted to yeah. finish your elegant. The doctor does not appear except in pre-recorded footage. Final answer. Hmm. This is the first round. And I, I generally err when asking kind of these sort of questions that don't have a, you know, sort of a vague answer line. I, I generally try to err on the, on the side of crediting things that are overly specific as opposed to not specific enough. So I think I'm going to accept that, even though it's not quite correct. Yeah, I mean, basically, these are quote-unquote Dr. Light episodes. 
episodes where the doctor has a very reduced role or barely appears okay. in them. Okay, cool. Good job, Matt. Yeah, uh, so uh, for, for example, in, in the episode Turn Left, it's an episode set in like an alternate universe where the doctor like died in a previous episode seasons earlier. And so his, mm-hmm. his companion is the one who has to save the world on her own. And they filmed that episode at the same time as a different episode where it was the doctor alone in a you know closed off train compartment without his companion. So they could gotcha. film two episodes at the same time and yeah. you know save on save on production time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ben's guess of what double banking meant was correct. It's basically shooting two episodes at the same time. All right, Jenna and Matt now to try and steal from Ben. Despite being French and having a name that literally means France, France, yeah, yeah, singer Franz Gall won the 1965 Eurovision Song Contest on behalf of which nation? Um. Oh, man. I, 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 know, I know some stuff about Eurovision. I've been getting more into it recently. Okay, I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to think. So, like, I, it might be, might be Luxembourg, might be Belgium. I, I, know, I, know, that, I know that both of those countries have one at least once. They're pretty um, sure it's a Francophone country in Europe. So like Canada can't compete, for example, because they're not in, or like greater, yeah. Israel's competed, I know that. Like, yes. You can't be that far afield. Okay, so we're just picking a different Francophone country is your, is your train of thought. I, I think so. I mean, there is the possibility that he, he could have, you know, just been a sort of wild card for a country that doesn't speak French. I mean- <laughs> Franz Dahl was a woman, by the way. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, I, I leave this to you, the person who knows some things about Eurovision. Okay. I don't know. I'll, let's, let's, let's go with Belgium. All right. You locked in Belgium? Yes. Let's lock in Belgium. All right. Ben? You're very close. It was Luxembourg. Oh. Uh, she won. We think one of, my, one of my favorite Eurovision winners, certainly of like the first you know, 20 years or so of Eurovision. It's very good. Yeah. Poupée de Cire, Poupée de Sang for Luxembourg. Right. Oh. Luxembourg okay. had a lot of mercenaries they used. Yeah. I, I remember I remember the name of that song, but didn't know that she was the one who had sang it. It's a bop. All right. So I, I just realized I'd forgotten. I forgot to give Jenna her bonus on the previous question that was stolen from her. Good. All right. So I was trying to toy with whether I should ask for one name or two names on this. And then during your discussion, you guys said one of the names. So basically, you know, those those three episodes. So as you mentioned, Turn Left focuses on a regular character, Donna Noble. The other two, Love and Monsters and Blink, focus on one-off guest characters. I was going to ask if you could name the performers who played both of those characters. Carrie Mulligan was already named. So I'm just going to ask if you know the other one. Oh, I, I, can, I can picture his face. And I know that the character was named Elton, I think Elton Pope, but I don't know the name of the actor who played him. Okay, yeah, yeah, Elton, I don't remember the surname, but yeah, it definitely was named Elton, big fan of Electric Light Orchestra, and played by an actor who was a regular on a very entertaining show called Hustle. His name is Mark Warren. All right, been, been a while since I watched that episode. It's, it's not one of the show's best. Um, it's it's, <laughs> the it's definitely- was, The monster was designed by an eight-year-old who won a contest. It's definitely very device, <laughs> uh, divisive among the fan base, yes. And although I, I, I see its weaknesses, Elton's final monologue is something I've quoted many, many times. One of the most powerful moments in the show, I think. So that kind of redeems it in my eyes. Future Yogesh here. Careful listeners may have noticed that I failed to enforce the Jimmy Lee rule. This was my fault, not Jenna's, so she won't be penalized for it. All right, Jenna and Ben to try and steal from Matt. 
Although he did three performances of his one-man show in 2002, Robin Williams' only dramatic acting on Broadway came in a 2011 Moises Kaufmannhelm production of Rajiv Joseph's Pulitzer-nominated play about a zoo animal that roams war-torn Baghdad in the wake of the 2003 American invasion of Iraq. What kind of animal did Robin Williams play in this production? Oh, boy. Hmm. Something hairy, maybe. Yeah, well, he probably, probably would have a costume. For, for whatever reason, the first thing that popped into my mind was peacock, but like I have no idea where that came from. Or okay, if, yeah, um, could be I don't know. Could be like a you know lion. Could be a gorilla. Um, if you have some some bell ringing for peacock, I would just be plucking something randomly off the ark. So I, I I'm fine with, with yeah. Any I, sort I mean, of you know the, here. The only the only reason that I hesitate is because I literally do not know where my brain drew that answer from. But um, I, the only thing that like the only slight hesitation I have is I don't think of peacock. This is maybe limited, or I, th- I don't think of peacock as being a zoo animal per se. I think it'd be more of like what a, what an eccentric rich person owns. But yeah. maybe that's just because I watch Thirty Rock a lot. I'm not really sure. Yeah. But I, I'm okay with that as a guess. And they definitely are. You know, <laughs> animals. <laughs> they they fit the brief. Here. Yeah, um, and it'd be, it'd be fun to actually seeing costumes. It'd be fun for Robin Williams to have like a whole like, you know, array of feathers behind him that he could, he could yeah. be a peacock with. So I, I'm gonna okay give it that. All right, let's let's lock in let's lock in peacock because why not? Sure, yeah, and, and I can definitely I can maybe I've seen them in zoos. If not, I can definitely imagine them being in zoos. So yeah, <laughs> plausible guess, but not correct, Matt. So I've heard of a historical based graphic novel about this incident. I'm pretty sure that there was, in fact, a lion that escaped the Baghdad Zoo that became the focus of a lot of stories and media attention. So my final answer is lion. All right. So the play was called Bengal Tiger in the Baghdad Zoo. Uh, ah. Oh. So, close. Yeah, you were close, but not, not, not there. All right. Yeah. And surprisingly, Williams wasn't nominated for a Tony for that performance, although his co-star, Ariad Moyad, who later went on to appear on Succession, All right, Matt and Ben now to try and steal from Jenna. This is, again, one of the longer questions, but again, just try and keep focus on what's being asked for. Linda is 31 years old, single, outspoken, and very bright. She majored in philosophy. As a student, she was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice and also participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. That part was a quote. In a series of now-famous experiments, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman gave participants that description that I just read, and then asked them to assign probabilities to various statements, including Linda is a bank teller and Linda is a bank teller active in the feminist movement. Estimating the latter to be more likely than the former is the paradigmatic example of what came to be known as the conjunction fallacy. However, psychologists like Gerd Gigerenzer and Ralph Hertwig have criticized Linda-based studies on the grounds that, rather than falling prey to a cognitive bias, participants are simply attempting to obey the conversational maxim of relevance, which the experimenters deliberately violated in order to get their finding. So if you were to attach a proper adjective, proper like capitalized, like a proper noun, derived from the name of a specific philosopher of language, to this line of critique of Gigerenzer and Hertwig, what adjective would be most appropriate? All right. I am pretty sure I have this 100%. Cool. So the maxims were devised by someone named H.P. Grice. So the Gricean maxims, quantity, quality, relevance, and manner. So I've heard of the study. I'm pretty sure that these are the Gricean maxims. Finally. I heartily cosign. 
Yes, I would also have accepted Grice, Grice, baby. <laughs> but sure, Grice, you. you, Matt. <laughs> All right, Jenna and Matt now to try and steal from Ben. The celebrated swinging 60s fashion model Tanya Mallet opted out of an acting career as she did not enjoy the experience of playing Tilly Masterson in Goldfinger. She had earlier auditioned for the role of Tatiana in From Russia with Love, but did not get it, despite being the granddaughter of a Russian aristocrat and thus sharing the character's ethnicity. As a result, within the British acting realm, her family has been represented primarily by what famous female first cousin of hers? Uh, let me think about this one. Okay. Tanya Mallet. There's some James Bond going on. Yeah. She is Russian, ethnically, to some extent. Yes. Is there another sort of Russian-named-esque British actress perhaps involved in the James Bond franchise we could think of? Like, maybe, like, Olga Kurilenko, was she a Bond girl at some point? Okay, I, I think... I think that Helen Mirren is of Russian descent or Slavic descent of some sort, because I, I believe that her first name at birth was Ivyana. Okay, um, I don't hate that. And thinking about the ages that Tiny Mallet would have been back then to like now, that makes some sense. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, feel, I feel okay going with Helen Mirren. All right, I defer to or you on Dame that. Dame Helen Mirren. We, we will lock in Dame Helen Mirren. Yeah, her, her surname at birth was Mironov, definitely of Russian descent. And yeah, her father and Tanya Mallet's mother were siblings. Good work. All right. Jenna and Ben now to try and steal from Matt. Maine legislator Cleveland Sleeper led efforts to keep what ingredient out of his beloved clam chowder? In 1939, a heavily publicized taste-off, judged by such luminaries as Maine Governor Louis O. Barrows and chocolate chip cookie inventor Ruth Wakefield, unanimously found Sleeper's chowder superior to one prepared by Philadelphia restaurateur Harry Tully containing this ingredient. Okay, so I don't like clam chowder, so I haven't, I'm not a connoisseur of it. Yeah, um, me neither. I had a roommate who made it a lot in college, and it was quite stinky. But I, I think that... There are varieties of clam chowder because there's like reach, obviously, most name for different cities, Manhattan clam yeah, chowder, yeah, yeah. Boston chowder. I know at least one of them has tomatoes in it. Yeah, that was um, that was my that was my first thought. I, I feel like there was a learned league question at some some point in the recent or semi-recent past that asked about like, you know, what's what's the ingredient that distinguishes, you know, like this type of regional yeah, clam chowder from this type. I think that's but I'm wondering. If there's anything that's, so that's like, like, I feel like the highest percentage guess I'm going to come up with, but I also yeah. want to mention, like, I've never heard of a Philadelphia clam chowder. Um, I don't think of it as being a particularly clammy city per se. So I don't know if there's anything like in Philadelphia, the word Philadelphia in Europe, just because I'm overly saturated here, just means cream cheese. It's on menus, just as Philadelphia, they just call it Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think you put cream cheese in clam chowder and that would be gross even by clam chowder standards but i but maybe, maybe that's the reason that nobody's heard of philadelphia clam chowder <laughs> yeah but i also i also meant that's sort of silly guess so i i feel good with 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 uh tomatoes if you're okay with that Jenna. all right yeah let's say tomatoes lock it in okay all right yeah clam chowder made with tomatoes is called manhattan clam chowder it's a common misconception that it's called that because it comes from manhattan it's just that new englanders would call things they don't like manhattan as an insult Incredible. <laughs> That's actually where it comes from. But yeah, yeah, tomato is correct. Oh, good work. All right. Matt and Ben now to try and steal from Jenna. 
Joss Stone's 2003 debut album, The Soul Sessions, consists entirely of covers of songs originally recorded in the 60s or 70s, with one exception, a 2001 song from the album White Blood Cells that she gender-swapped in the process altering its title. What was that song? I'll accept either version of the title. Okay. okay. I don't know who this is. I know what soul is as a genre. Okay. Jostone like soul type genre. I can describe who Jostone was. Jostone was a blonde person who I read about repeatedly in Rolling Stone, but I don't know if I ever actually heard her music. She was like very critically acclaimed or sort of like a critical darling. I don't know if this is fair or not to her. So that, yeah, obviously signing off any sort of possible slander mm-hmm. of her, but I don't think that she ever had like hits per se, but she was someone who was like supposed to be impressive. Okay. Um, and, and sort of wasn't sort of like a bluesy, like I should probably play guitar kind of vein. And she was young. She definitely like came out when she was pretty young in, in Oh three ish. So it doesn't help at all, but something, so a song from the a 2001 so song that has, like a that has, songs. So there's a gender so, word in it. Right, exactly. So a 2001 song with a gendered word in it. Is this what was we really before, before he cheats because Carrie Underwood hadn't won American Idol yet. Yeah, that's correct. Um, that was several years later. Yeah. Um, a moment like this was, I guess, the Kelly Clarkson song she won that year. But, that but I don't think, I, I think White Blood Cell sounds a little bit more hardcore than an American Idol single. Maybe. Potentially. And also if it's in Jenna's category, I think it's going to be something way cooler. Yeah, I mean, like maybe um, White Stripes. That's that has white in it. Do they have any gendered songs? Um, he's not gendered. What is the other song called? They have that song about like doorbell. I've been thinking about my doorbell. Um, um, what's that song? No, what is there? I don't even know if this is right, but what is the other White Stripes song? Their second single is something maybe gendered. Uh, I oh gosh, I'm drawing a blank there. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really have anything. Oh, you know, here. there is that song called like the Funk Soul Brother. Did that come out? Like the Fat Boy Slim. Did that come out around then? I think like 2001 was a little late for that. But maybe there's oh, like a oh, Funk check Soul it out. Funk Soul. That song I don't think it's called. I don't. That's not, not called, called that. that. Okay. That's called like I think that's like Rockefeller Skank or something. Like, <sighs> that is at least a Fat Boy Slim song. Okay, um, I'm not getting any further. Than um, that, really. Yeah. I think that's also too early for White Stripes. Actually, mm-hmm. one of them, they were quite doing stuff by then. Well, um, I'm not sure it actually is White Stripes. I just saw the word White. No, no, I, yeah. I'm just, I'm just trying to think of either. You should spend more time thinking of White Stripes titles. Yeah, I'm going gonna, gonna to free myself from that that experience. I, yeah, I don't, uh, let's see. So 2001, let's think of something like, no, white blood. All those music. Mother, sister, father, mother, brother, papa, mama. I feel like I feel like it's probably something romantic if it's Girl, gender boy. swapped. Because yeah. I feel like men and women can both still have brothers. Uh-huh. Um, Girlfriend, boyfriend. Uh, not that they obviously that was a very heteronormative statement, so redact that. But uh, gender <laughs> words. I uh, yeah. Husband, wife, like, groom, bride. Yeah. I <laughs> uh, boy, boy. Who else is bigger on them? Like, no doubt. Oh, ex- yeah, actually, X. No, that would have been a little bit earlier. X girlfriend. No, it also was not. They don't have an album called White Blood Cells, so that's not right. But that's an interesting thought. I don't really have it yet. I don't think we're, if we don't know White Blood Cells, I don't think we really have a prayer here. So okay. let's Maybe say, let's say goodbye, girl. Sure. Lock that in. All right. Yeah. If anyone, if anyone does accuse you of being heteronormative, man, just remind them you're a Nova Fomo. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
<laughs> new at this. Yes. All right, Jenna. All right. So for, for those of you listening at home, what you what you can't see because this is an audio medium is that throughout the entirety of Matt and Ben trying to answer my questions, I have been completely covering my face with my hands because I have a terrible poker face. So you probably couldn't see my my anguish and despair as you correctly realize that it is the white stripes. But Oh, is it fell in love with the Mm. Yep. I, I, I don't I don't Damn know the it. White Stripes well enough to know which album this song is from, but the White Stripes song with a gender title that I can think of is Fell in Love with a Girl. So I'm assuming that she changed it to Fell in Love with a Boy. And now I'm it that to me. Yeah. I should have kept going on that train. Bang. Yeah, it was good to get, you know, to, to get to the White Stripes, definitely. Um, mm. But yeah, you just needed to push a little bit further on that. But you you couldn't, but right. Jenna, Jenna did. Very good. Sorry that I could not come through there, Matt. All right. And the final question of this round to Jenna and Matt to try and steal from Ben. Very short question. During the 2015-16 season, Ash Barty played what sport in the Women's Big Bash League? So I think it's probably not tennis, which is the thing that she got super good at after that. Yeah. What Um, else has bashes? Well, I mean, she's Australian, isn't she? So, I mean, what sports are popular in Australia? Australian rules football? That would make sense. Yeah, like, so, the word Australian is not used here. And that is a bashy point around there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, rugby, rugby is also a possibility, but yeah, I I don't I don't have a I don't have much of a much of a leaning I, I between that like a lateral and, and world. question yeah. thinking sense. The fact that Australian's not set here makes right. me think that Australian rules football is a better answer. Okay, that's fair. So yeah, I I don't know if any of you listen to the podcast Learned Lag, but they they have they have a set of rules that they always, you know, use to guide their answers in, in learning league questions. And one of the rules is what is Thorsten not saying? So in this case, what is Yogesh not saying? Mm-hmm. And he's not he's not saying her nationality. So right. so I think we're gonna do it. Australian rules football, final answer. Well, I certainly can't fault your logic there, but I might have to fault your answer. What do you think, Ben? I actually interviewed Ash Barty during this hiatus in this sport where I was at a, she, her, she on the men's team. So she was on the women's team and I interviewed her during a, a match of the men's team and in the big bash cricket league um, oh. where people in a very sophisticated culture of sports down there, they wear empty KFC buckets on their heads. Very festive. I didn't know that part, that last part, mm-hmm. but yes, cricket. They don't tell you that to foreigners, but if you go there and see it for yourself, there's a lot of people wearing chicken buckets on their head that's interesting okay because i you know i know about the colonel sanders curse i know about the uh, christmas romantic dinners at kfc but i didn't know that that bit of kfc trivia that's interesting uh yeah all right so ben is correct we end that round that answer actually nudged ben into the lead at 8.2 over matt at 7.2 jenna i was worried for a little bit because she was scoreless across the first five questions but she rebounded nicely and is at 5.1 points as we head into the only somewhat hard round, which will begin with Jenna and Ben attempting to steal from Matt. So Wikipedia's list of cities claimed to be built on seven hills includes what two cities that, per the 2020 U.S. Census, are the second and third most populous cities in New England? One is built on Christian Hill, College Hill, Constitution Hill, Federal Hill, Smith Hill, Tokwatton Hill, and Waybosset Hill, and the other on... Pakachoeg, also known as Mount St. James, Sagatabscot, or Union Hill, 
or maybe Grafton Hill, Hancock Hill, Chandler Hill, also known as Belmosey Hill, Green Hill, Bancroft Hill, and Newton Hill. Okay. Oh. So, so the Rome threads are really quite thick through, yeah. this, uh, through, this, through this night, which I appreciate. Buonasera. Um, okay. I, so we have to name the second, so, second and third biggest cities in New England. So that seems yeah. doable. So my first thought might be Providence, Rhode Island, because I, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe Providence is too small, but I just. Yeah, I am not, that's definitely in the run yeah. for possible answers. I think the yeah. biggest one has to be somewhere in Connecticut. Um, yeah, okay. And I think the biggest city in Connecticut is not Hartford. I think it's. Might be New Haven. I think it might be New Haven. I'm trying to remember when yeah, I was because, there, how hilly you know, the, it was. Yeah, the, the reason the reason that I jumped to Providence was because I was thinking about, you know, like college towns because of College Hill and the first one. Right. Yeah. But that also New Haven would check that box as a college with Yale. Yeah. It would be collegiate enough. Yeah, yeah, I, I, know, I know. That's what I was saying. Yeah. Yeah. I okay, so I'm just gonna miss some other New England cities. So elsewhere in Connecticut would be like Stamford, Hartford, Bridgeport. Bridgeport, I think is actually pretty big. I actually don't even know what the biggest city in Connecticut is. That's not great. And then Providence is there. And then elsewhere in, in Massachusetts, or we're just saying Boston is number one, right? I assume. So yeah. elsewhere in Massachusetts would be like Worcester is probably up there. I don't think anything further west is probably in the running. And then I don't think it's anything in Vermont or New Hampshire or maybe Portland. I don't think Portland Maine is in the top three cities in New England. I'd be surprised. So that's kind of, I think we probably named the answers. You know, to figure out which of those things we said is right. Yeah. Um, I I kind of think they're probably okay. I've been to Providence is hilly. I've been to Providence. Seven hilly. Yeah. One hill. Uh, I mean, it's not a bad bad guess, but yeah. I just think in terms of like population size, the odds are they're probably both in Connecticut. Yeah. Okay. But I'm not. <clears throat> I'm not confident in this. I'm not even sure what the two biggest cities Connecticut are. So. I think, I think it might be Bridgeport for some reason. I feel like it's not Hartford okay. as, as the biggest one. I think that I'm basing this on not much, not a state I spent a lot of time in Connecticut, mm-hmm. um, but on the Avenue, we're all familiar with in this, in this quiz, but not the, as much the state. Yeah, I kind of would want to say like Bridgeport and New Haven, but I don't have anything to go on. Yeah, if you, I mean, if you want to overrule... I'm no, that. I'm I'm perfectly fine going with Bridgeport and New Haven. So you're locking in Bridgeport and New Haven? Right. And you good? <laughs> good guesses? Ben, ben appears to be having a, a coughing fit of some sort. Yeah, I'm just There's a lot of pollen in Rome, sorry. <laughs> all right, yeah, all, all coming in from the Seven Hills. I get it. Yeah, all right. Uh, what do you think, Matt? So I am 100% sure that there is a prominent federal hill in Providence, Rhode Island, which has some of the best Italian restaurants in the country on it. Highly recommend. So I'm going to lock in Providence for my first guess. The second guess I'm much less sure about. Providence is about 200,000 people, if I remember correctly. And the, the, the one that Ben said that made me feel is most right is probably Worcester, though I'm torn between Worcester and Springfield as one of the cities in Western Massachusetts. I'm going to go with Worcester, Massachusetts for my other guess. So Providence and Worcester, locking that in. Yeah, those are correct. Very good. Good work. Connecticut found wanting. <laughs> Bridgeport is a coastal city, so I'm not sure how hilly it is. Yeah, I yeah, I thought of that, but I, I don't know. 
Yeah, yeah, I think it is the most populous in Connecticut. Not 100% sure. Yeah. Bridgeport, Hartford, and New Haven are very close. Okay, at least I got that part. If I got the most populous city in Connecticut, so I feel okay with that. Consolation prize to myself and and failure. All right, Matt and Ben to try and steal from Jenna. Two answers required. Joss Stone's 2012 follow-up, The Soul Sessions Volume 2, similarly includes only one 21st century song among its roster of covers. That 2009 song was a collaboration between what indie frontman beloved by Zach Braff and what pseudonymous record producer who is voiced by neither David Jason nor Alexander Armstrong? I feel like I should know what some of these names mean. I know who Zach Braff is. Okay. Zach Braff is the guy who from Scrubs and he was in Garden State, which had a very famous soundtrack with a lot of indie music in it. Okay. So that's probably what that hint is. a New Jersey and indie person. Yeah, I don't think that it necessarily stuck to New Jersey per se. I don't think it was a totally locavore compilation, uh-huh. but I'm pretty sure that it's a Garden State hint of some kind. Okay. Pseudonymous record producer. Oh, okay. I think the I think the second part is probably Danger Mouse. I think I, that was producer. I was thinking about Danger Mouse, and I was thinking about like so that that's not a terrible guess. Um, oh, is there somebody? I want to say, I want to say there was a collab a duo who did songs around then who are called like Sparkle Horse and Danger Mouse. But I don't know if Sparkle Horse is an indie frontman or I don't know if Sparkle Horse was like the name of their duo. I'm not entirely not sure if Sparkle Horse or Jay-Z, thing. that's for sure. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> but for some reason, Sparkle Horse is ringing a, a bell with me. I have nothing Jenny's better. poker face is just the poker top of her head at this point. So she's really mm-hmm. up to her game for this question. Let me, uh, I... If you don't have anything, Matt, I, I feel like Sparkle else, Horse so and Danger Mouse is, is something that brings a bell in my head. So let's maybe go with that. Okay, so we'll lock in Sparkle Horse and Danger Mouse. Okay. Sparkle Horse actually doesn't ring any bells for me, but then again, I'm not a- I'm, music- I'm, familiar, I'm familiar with the name, but it's, it's, a, it's a band, not a person. Okay, that's, okay. yeah, I kind of thought it was. All right, Jenna? Okay, so you're right about the second one being Danger Mouse, you know, named after the, the cartoon character. And then the first one, so probably the most famous scene from Garden State is, I think it's like Natalie Portman's character, you know, puts headphones on Zach Braff's character and says, this song will change your life. And it plays new slang by the Shins. And the frontman of the Shins, James Mercer, was in a duo called Broken Bells with Danger Mouse. Uh... They put out, I think, like an album or two around that time. And then they they released they released like one or two follow up singles in like 2018 or 2019, but nothing came of that at least not yet. But yeah, anyway, so the answer is James Mercer and Danger Mouse, aka Brian yeah. Burton, blocking that. I have I have a, I have a Broken Bells album actually, but I wasn't. I know, yeah, yeah. There was a very yeah. good video for one of their songs with Christina Hendricks, which I'm blanking on the title of right now. But it was a different one that was covered by Joss Stone. The Joss Stone cover was the High Road. But yeah, Danger Mouse. Mm-hmm. Ma- I have Danger- that song. Yeah. Andrew Mouse and James Mercer is correct. Very good. And you're also correct that they weren't from New Jersey. I think the Shins are from Albuquerque. Hmm. All right, Jenna and Matt now to try and steal from Ben. Born in Ontario, Canada to a father who emigrated from Romania, she won the U.S. Open as a teenager on her very first entry into that tournament. That detailed and seemingly specific sentence accurately applies to which two tennis players? I know about well, okay. these Euro tennis players. So I okay. know 
There's so someone named Canadian... Emma Raducanu who just won a thing, and that's a very Romanian name. Yeah, and the the other the other name that I was thinking of, who I'm pretty sure is a Canadian of Romanian descent, is oh, I, I just I just had the name and then blanked on it. Oh, uh, Bianca Andrescu. That is a name I've heard. I wasn't sure if he played tennis or basketball, but yeah, those are Romanian names. All right, do we want to do we want to go with those two then? Sure. Okay, let's go with Raducanu and Andrescu. Lock it in. Yeah, I think the basketball player you might be thinking of is Sab Ionescu, who came from University of Oregon. Okay. But yeah, I mean, you, you two both uh, said in advance that you knew absolutely nothing about women's tennis, but uh, apparently you know a couple things about it. I talked to Emma kind of today. She's okay. also in Rome. Oh, okay. Yeah, she... Um, There's more Roman stuff. As is Andrescu's here too. She seems fun. She hasn't had a chance to see much of the city yet, but you know, she had dinner. She had a nice time. Cool. Yeah. Uh, Raducanu, of course, is identified with her current home country of the UK, but she was born in Canada. All right. Jenna and Ben now to try and steal from Matt. Even though he largely outshone his reference group, winning a Nobel Prize for his contributions to the Black-Scholes formula for pricing options, the fact that the unintended consequences of his actions put a strain on and eventually destroyed the hedge firm long-term capital management suggests that what economist is not nearly as good a role model as his father? Well, okay. All right. Reference all I know about like good and bad role models is Goofus and Gallant. And I don't think that's very relevant here. I... Yeah, the, the, the notorious economist, Joseph Goofus. <laughs> Joseph Goofus, the Goofus curve. I, uh, I meant to destroy the headphone capo. Not nearly as good a role model as his father. So who is a father who's a good role model? Which father knows mm. best? Yeah, I, let's see. This is, again, not a category that I really know much about. But yeah. I this is a question that is, will require real knowledge of something. Yeah, is is reference group a hint, or is that just, um, or is is that is that just a, a coincidence? Yeah, even though he choice? largely outshone his reference group, the fact that the unintended consequences of his actions put a strain on, not nearly as good as his, fa- his father. Um, I, I feel I, I feel like there's there's gotta there's gotta be some sort of like hidden clue here somewhere in the wording, but not completely yeah, sure what like, it might be i i feel like there almost certainly is but i also feel like even if we find that thread and pull on it like i don't know anything in terms of actually coming up with a surname of an economist yeah to, uh, something like someone who outshone like someone like i don't know some larger star you know david Betelgeuse or something yeah. <laughs> so i i've again i feel like i could just say silly things for a while and not really know um yeah. i i don't know so we went for Smith last time. Should we go Johnson? Sure. Why not? <laughs> That's about where I'm at with this. Okay. So Yogesh, we're going to lock in Johnson, both the father and, and son. Right. Right. Again, can't fault your strategy, but not the correct answer. Matt? The way you said reference group definitely made me think that it was a term. And then you said strain and role model, both of which are terms that are used in the writings of sociologist Robert Merton. So, and I know that there is a different Merton who did economics. So my final answer is Merton. Yeah. So, Jenna, you said there's a hint hidden in the wording. There's actually four hints hidden in the wording. Classic (laughs) Yogesh. Reference group, unintended consequences, strain, and role model. Those are all concepts associated with Robert K. Merton, whose son, Robert C. Merton, is the economist in question. He also coined the phrase self-fulfilling prophecy. No kidding. That feels like the kind of thing that would have come from, like, Shakespeare or the Bible or something. Yeah. 
All right, Matt and Ben now to try and steal from Jenna. Prior to being cast as the 12th Doctor, <laughs> Jenna's already assuming Jenna's the assumed the position already, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the airplane, you're heading for an airplane crash, head yeah. between the knees. All right. Prior to being cast as the 12th Doctor, Peter Capaldi had a major guest starring role in a 2008 Doctor Who episode set in the first century CE that takes place primarily in what city? So... Like again, we're talking about Rome. A lot of cities um, around then. Yeah. Is there any other role that we know him for? Like, like he was on that prime minister, like it wasn't Yes Minister. It was like a British prime minister show. I forget the name of it. I don't but know him. I think one is all, just honestly. too basic an answer. I forget what it was called, but like he called someone like an omni shambles at one point. Oh, okay. I know that word. Yeah. It's called the thick of it. I, I couldn't stand okay. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that takes place in London, but that would be too like too much of Doctor Who probably takes place in London if that's be an interesting answer. Is there it any has a, it has to be it has to be a city that was around in the first century CE? Right. So there are again oh, that li- that limits yeah. our choices quite a bit. Right. Paris was around, Marseille was around, Rome was around, Carthage was around. Pretty sure. Yeah, I think it's probably more something along the lines of something that would be like more like popping and like more along the lines of like Rome or Carthage. Or yeah, it could be like Jerusalem because like Jesus stuff happened around Jesus then. did have a, a stay in Jerusalem for a while, yeah. Yeah, or like, yeah. I, I don't I mean, want Jerusalem... to see Rome <laughs> because you're in this Well, we think of like big, big first century events. Like there right, is like, a Rome theme the here. Things people, the people, the thing, like paradigmatic thing people would time travel to in the first century would be like the crucifixion or like Jesus or, stuff. Or Brutus so, doing the stabbing. People that was first century getting... BC. Okay, good catch. Yeah, but the great fire um, of Rome was first century CE. Um, okay. Capaldi yeah. is an Italianish name. It is. I don't know if that matters. But I think you can probably, you know, appropriate any culture when it's that long ago. People uh-huh. will complain. Hmm. I Need yeah, I think guest starring role. What's it like? I mean, usually guest starring roles aren't that major. Right? I don't think this one has as many hints as the last one. I don't. I don't sense a lot of wordplay here. Okay. I think we're kind of just maybe I'm being wrong, but I think this is a pretty straight up question. I mean, I think given how much Rome stuff there's been already, I want to veer away from that towards something else, since that makes me want to do Jerusalem. Okay, uh, that's I'm fine with that logic. Although, like, it's been Yogesh said did say he was like surprised how much Rome was coming in. So maybe there's like a Rome like Tiber running through his brain that he was unaware of. Yeah, though I don't. I feel like he wouldn't have said that if he knew this. That's true. That's yeah. true. He's a pro. He's a pro. All right. So, um, Jerusalem. I'm fine with Jerusalem. Final answer. Okay, that did definitely cross my mind as a possibility. Yeah, when I was trying to think how how might people answer this, that definitely crossed my mind as a very likely answer. And I appreciate all the meta gaming you're doing as well. <laughs> but uh, what do you think, Jenna? Yeah, so this was season four, episode two of the revived series. Peter Capaldi he plays the the head of a a family in this city that the Doctor chooses to save from the big disastrous event that famously occurred there in 79 CE. Oh. This episode was called The Fires of Pompeii. Pompeii, final answer. That sure happened in the first century CE. It was yeah. Italian at least, but we weren't going to scout and think of Pompeii. Yeah, and I only realized later that it was a big in-joke. All the members of his family were taken from a family that appears in like the comprehensive Latin course that like intro students are, are given. Mm. That was a, a fun in-joke. Do you know which other future Doctor Who cast member appears in that episode? Yeah, uh, Karen Gillan plays a sort of like prophetess of some sort. Although 
Peter Capaldi's character's wife is played by Tracy Childs in that episode. And she played a companion of the seventh doctor in the big Finnish audio plays. Sure. <laughs> I believe you. Very good. Very good. All right. Jenna and Matt now to try and steal from Ben. Oh boy. I didn't even realize this was oh, okay. What Italian cantatore who late in life turned to politics and represented the radical party in, by the way, I really thought Ben would be coming from Spain for this episode. I had absolutely no idea you would be in Italy. Sorry, No worries. What Italian contatore who late in life turned to politics and represented the Radical Party in Italy's parliament won the 1958 San Remo Music Festival with his Nel Blu Dipinto di Blu, better known as Volare. His version of that song also came third in the 1958 Eurovision Song Contest and won the first ever Record of the Year Grammy. Uh, Volare is uh, definitely a crossword thing, isn't I, it? I believe his name is like uh, Domenico Mondugno, something like that. Mondugno or Mondugno. Totally I, I, feel, I feel like that's his name. I am fairly certain that it's, it's something very close to that. Say what I, you think is best. Okay, let's, let's lock in Mondugno. Yeah, yeah, I think that's... Uh, All right. Yeah. Your last pronunciation was the best one of, of them. So yes, good work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Mondugno's I mean, right, yeah. I wasn't going to be super nitpicky on pronunciation as long as you had yeah. you know, all, all the basic letters and basic consonants in the right order and all that. But, oh boy, I... Yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a one day special scorer on Learned League, and you would not believe how many spelling variations we have to sort through every single day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not a, a grader, but I am a, a BWA searcher. So during the main, I've seen like sixty different spelling variations on the same word. Yeah. All right. Good. Good answer. Ben unfortunately continues to be shut out during this round, but uh, it happens. I'm having fun. No worries. <laughs> fun is being had. <laughs> All right, Jenna. I'm and also ben- responsible for like two thirds of my you know, direct failure here, so I can <laughs> I can take that. All right, good. That's always good to be a good sport about that. All right, Jenna and Ben now to try and steal from Matt. Alfred Drake had a varied and interesting life, authoring the card-playing handbook Anyone Can Win at Gin Rummy and Canasta, in addition to starring in the original Broadway productions of Babes in Arms, Oklahoma, Kiss Me Kate, and Kismet. Although it earned him a Tony nod, one of his more forgotten leads came in a 1961 Broadway musical with an impressive pedigree. Peter Stone's book was based on a 1953 play by Jean-Paul Sartre, itself an adaptation of an 1836 play by Alexandre Dumas-Père. Dying may be relatively easy compared to naming what subject of those biographical plays, who passed away in 1833 after collapsing during a performance of Othello. Oh boy, okay. So an 1833 actor. Yeah. yeah I'm just, I'm just That's like, there's, there's, there's so much in this question to potentially latch yeah. onto. Okay. Alfred Drake was in a 1961 Broadway musical. Dying okay. would be relatively easy. That's something. Yeah. Easy. Dying is easy. Is that a thing? It's like, it's not like an Agatha Christie title or something along those lines, but yeah. Um, Dying is easy. Living is hard. Die hard, Bruce Willis. He was he was later than eighteen thirty three. Um, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I don't. I don't think. I don't think. Sorry, I, I'm, I'm, if you're if you're on real thoughts, I should I should be quiet. Um, no, I'm not. Fine. fine. <laughs> um, I just I, honestly, Jenna, I cannot name an eighteen thirty three yeah. actor. If that's what this question requires, I'm going to have to really yeah. fraud my way to it because um, mm-hmm. 
I just I just don't know that category of people. So that was like pre I basically like yeah. 19th century actors for me is John Wilkes Booth. End of list. <laughs> and I don't think it's him. No. So yeah. Because he didn't die in 1833. So it's not even yeah, I yeah, jokingly yeah. guess that. <sighs> if yeah. only uh, had. All right. Uh, I yeah, I'm 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 sure that dying may be relatively easy is is a hint, but I, I can't I can't for the life of me tell. <sighs> You know, so what, 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 towards... what, what common surname are we up to at this point? Brown, <laughs> Anderson, yeah. Green. Okay, if I mean, if you know, the the first two plays were by Dumas and Sartre, then you know, presumably, or maybe, maybe not presumably, but you know, likely that this could be a French person, yeah. That I, makes I, know, sense. I know that, like, didn't like Moliere die on stage, but I don't think it was during Othello. Oh, you know um, what? Actually, actually, we don't even know that he was on stage. That's because true. He just could have collapsed during performance. He could have been he could have been a very disruptive audience member, <laughs> or maybe quiet member who just didn't leave after the final ovation. Yeah, but yeah, it could be someone in the in the stand. Okay, so like, okay, now we can sure shift into like theater goer in 1833. That that I feel like yeah. I can make a more plausible bad guess of. Yeah, if you if Moliere died in some way, he seems like someone who could have stuff written about him. I mean, to have to be the subject of multiple biographical plays, I feel like you had to some way. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah, I, I don't I don't think it's him, but I don't really have a better guess. That's so, good enough yeah, for me. Let's, yeah, let's let's go, let's go with Moliere. Lock it in. All right. Yeah, I see. I think it was during a performance of the imaginary invalid. Yes, proved, that's it. He, he proved to be a not imaginary uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> invalid. All right. Matt? That was in the 1660s or so. So when I think about famous actors who played the role of Othello, the name that comes to mind is someone named Ira Aldridge, who was, I believe, actually African-American at a time when playing an African-American character. Many people who did that were not that. But I'm not sure Sartre or Duval would have cared about him. And I don't think that fits whatever this dying is easy thing is doing. The, the line that I think of when I see that is dying is easy, young man, living is harder, which is what George Washington says to Alexander Hamilton in the musical Hamilton, which I guess has the Marquis de Lafayette as a character who the French people might care about. But I don't, that, that line isn't relevant to him, I don't think, but I don't have anything better. So I'm going to go with Marquis de Lafayette. All right. Yeah, the line I was thinking of famously attributed to this supposedly this man's dying words were dying is easy comedy is hard Mm. which is quoted by peter o'toole in my favorite year among other places but his name legendary actor who i think in that performance was actually acting opposite his son as iago and he was playing othello his name was edmund Keane. i have heard that name Um, it's not i don't i don't think i've heard of it but i mean i it's it's a it's a name i will file away in my in my mental filing cabinet. There's no way, there's no way to like better learn a fact than to spend five minutes showing you don't yeah. know it on this podcast, as I've learned from previous episodes. Yeah. Well said, well said. All right, Matt and Ben now to try and steal from Jenna. For most people, the phrase theory of relativity is intrinsically linked to Albert Einstein, but linguistics has its own theory of relativity. What does the theory of linguistic relativity say? I mean, are we just talking about the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis here? 
Do you just want Which a description is... of it? That the language that one speaks or that one thinks in growing up determines like the contours of what one thinks the world is like. I don't oh know yeah, like how it's... like how language has ways of shaping your thinking. Yeah. I guess so. I mean, that was, is that relativity? That is that I have heard the sacred worth hypothesis called the linguistic relativity hypothesis. Okay. That sounds like, you know, the answer though. So that's pretty good. I will say Um, just that the language that one speaks determines the way one sees the world. Right. Not to be confused with the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, which is that the language that one speaks determines how much honor one has. Is that a Star Trek joke? Have we been Star Trek joked? Yeah. Warf versus Horf. <laughs> All right. I think I think Jenna is acknowledging that was correct. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Ben did did score in this round. Good. You saw everyone heard me really know that one. So good, good job. <laughs> All right. And now the final question of the round before we proceed to the super hard round. Jenna and Matt, now to try and steal from Ben. Although the origin of the James Bond theme has long been disputed, Monty Norman has a very good claim to its composition, since its melody bears a strong resemblance to a portion of Good Sign, Bad Sign, a song he wrote for a stage musical based on what 1961 novel? Reflecting the novel's setting, that original song was intended to be played on the sitar accompanied by the tabla. Uh, Hmm, okay. what kind of sign are we talking about? Like astrology yeah. sign, possibly? Maybe. Um, yeah, so uh, like novels about India that white people might have composed for. Yeah. I think about like maybe like Hermann Hesse's Siddhartha. But like, if you're thinking possibly. about like British, it could be like some Kipling thing. So like the Jungle Book or like- I don't, think, I don't think Kipling was writing that late, was he? No, I think he was probably dead. Fine. Yeah. But maybe, the novel the musical must have someone come from really beyond fast. the grave. If it came if the novel came out in 61, then this yeah. song happened, then Dr. No is 1962. There was almost no interruption between the novel coming out and it becoming a musical, which is intriguing. But I think Siddhartha's also early Hessa. Hessa lived this long, but I think that was in the like the 20s or 30s. Okay. So not totally sure what's going on then yeah okay yeah i'm i'm not nothing nothing is coming to mind for me unfortunately yeah so do we do we want to like try and focus on good sign bad sign again and like what kinds of what kinds of signs omen yeah uh, or just like someone who like makes traffic signs (laughs) i don't know but it's probably Um, like you know a, a, a signal of good things to happen in some abstract sense. Yeah, yeah. But who is writing about India in 1961? Like, maybe did Waugh have anything said in India? Forster was a lot earlier than that. With the passage yeah. It was like 1914. The Secret Garden was way earlier than that. What else? It was a little early for, it's, it's too early for like Arundhati Roy or like Markandaya or like the other sort of novelists mm-hmm. actually from India. Yeah, I maybe it's like a VS Nepal thing. Was maybe doing stuff by that point. I I don't know. You you know this better than I do, I think. Uh, okay. So I'm gonna have to just guess an Indian thing. Like I think an India associated thing. 
I will guess that this is Nectar in a Sieve. Final answer. Who's that by? I don't know if you uh, Kamala Markandaya. Oh, okay. Educational guess, but not correct. Pass to Ben. I was feeling okay until the part where Matt listed so many different novels and ruled them all out for good reasons. I was just going to say Passage to India using your all thoughts. They didn't actually say India in the question. So, and just because I have nothing more, obviously, but I don't think it's anything James Bond related directly here because none of the James Bond novels, I believe, took place in India at all. Um, and also they were in musicals. So that would have been fun. I, I will just say a passage to India and no one's going to be wrong, but at least be consistently wrong. All right. So you all, you all lit on the India part, uh, this, this kind of being the second round and you all being such great quizzers. There's an extra wrinkle in there you had to, to kind of push past. And actually, Matt did push past it. At the very end of his deliberation, he threw out the name of someone whose novels are set among the Indian diaspora rather than actually in India itself when he mentioned V.S. Naipaul. He just didn't quite push all the way to a house for Mr. Bishwas. Mm. All right. I think the protagonist considers himself cursed, hence why he was born under a bad sign. Mm. All right. So at the end of that round, Matt has taken the lead at 25.2. Jenna is at 19.1. Ben at 12.2. Basically Ooh, just... Boy. Yeah, basically just one question separating all of you. So there's still a possibility for anyone to triumph as we head into the super hard round with the questions worth six points as a steal, five as a specialist, three if there's a bonus. And we begin yet again with Jenna and Ben to try and steal from Matt. Based on the life of Ezekiel Dlamini, an ex-boxer who murdered his girlfriend and is believed to have drowned himself at age 36, what groundbreaking apartheid-era musical premiered at Johannesburg's Witwatersrand University in February 1959 with a cast that included Miriam Makeba and an ensemble that included Hugh Masakela? Considered a milestone in South African theater, it happens to share its title with a completely unrelated big-budget musical that flopped on Broadway in 2018. The latter show, The Flop, was ultimately based on a screen treatment that prolific thriller writer Edgar Wallace was in the midst of drafting at the time of his 1932 death. Okay. All right. Anywhere uh, I'm going to get on this one is probably in the second half of the question. Honestly. All right. Yeah. I don't, I don't know a the, lot about South African theater. Although I do know Marianne yeah. McCabe. The only, the, only the only thing that I know from the first half of the question is that I believe that Blamini is the real last name of the rapper doja cat but oh. i don't think that's i don't think that's relevant <laughs> could be could be a relative. i mean i don't think it's yeah you can make like a mashup musical and rap called doja cats you know based from doja and andrew lloyd weber but i don't think it would necessarily be south african it doesn't check all the boxes unfortunately i a big budget musical that flops on broadway the latter show is based on the screen treatment that yeah I assume it's a little bit of a bell, but not yeah. enough to actually be audible. Although Miriam McCabe does have a song called Ring Bell. That's a nice tie-in. Again, not helpful. I was that show, the Spider-Man show that kept like paralyzing people. Turn off the dark, but that was that was yeah. around 2018. Okay. That'd be a good name for a murder play, though. Yeah, I don't think it's that. I again, that's the top titles we can't even guess it yeah all right i yeah i i feel dumb for not having even any way to think of anything here but yeah. um 
I'm intrigued by this. I just don't, I don't know these things that yeah. one that Yogesh requires us to know to come up with a guess. And he gave us, look, there's multiple lanes that I, that, that I'm unable to yeah. forward my wagon across here. So all right. Uh, Jimmy Lee rule we... was important because I was on the Jimmy Lee episode and that rule was there for a reason. So you want to make something up or should I, Jenna? Uh, sure. I'll, I'll say, I'll say, let's say, um, death in the desert. Walk it in. Okay. That wasn't, again, you know, this is also an educational experience for me doing these episodes because I, I learned things from the, the contestants. I, I did not know Doja Cat. Uh, I did not know her, her background. I, I looked it up just now. Her father was actually in the Broadway cast of Sarafina, which was again, a, a South African thing that a uh, piece of theater that kind of transcended that country and became internationally renowned. So that's a really interesting thing to know. Thank you for that. But I can't, can't give you any points for it. Educating you about Doja Cat and Garfield. Two, two different types of cat. Very feline. <laughs> fair, fair. All right, Matt? So I know a decent amount about South American, or sorry, South African, like, straight plays, like dramas. I don't really know anything about, and I know about one musical that's based on a South African novel that's not from there, which is Lost in the Stars. That's not about this. I don't, I'm not sure I can name a 2018 Broadway flop off the top of my head. There was re- like semi-recently, but probably a few years too early, there was a flop musical called Bright Star. And that's, I guess, the best, the closest I can come time-wise. So I'm going to guess that that's Bright Star. All right. I think probably the best way in here was kind of in the last sentence. I said, you know, in the midst of drafting at his 1932 death, but you could maybe kind of infer the film was made relatively soon after that. And then just kind of asking what film from the early 1930s is still sort of has a cultural presence nowadays and people might be making adaptations or want to make a musical about it. That's maybe kind of the most likely way in if someone were to get it. Both of these musicals were called King Kong. That was okay. thing. I remember the Tony Awards where they showed off the puppet, but huh, I didn't remember it was a musical. I thought it was a straight play. Huh. Anyway. Also, Matt, your, your guess of Bright Star reminded me. I... I got dragged to see that play by my family when it was playing in DC and we left at intermission. It was very, very bad. Uh, there was, I, I seem, I seem to remember there was a scene where like the, the protagonist finds out that like his father has like thrown his infant son off of a, off of a bridge. And the protagonist is just like, Oh man, why'd you have to do that? Dad. <laughs> so bizarre. Oh dear. But yeah, the, uh, yeah, the musical King Kong, or yeah, the Broadway one, yeah, that was originally staged in Melbourne five years earlier, and a book by Craig Lucas, who I believe wrote Prelude to a Kiss. All right, Matt and Ben, this is a fairly dense question, but with Matt's ACF background, maybe that's what he's looking for. Matt and Ben to try and steal from Jenna. In his lecture series, later published as How to Do Things with Words, J.L. Austin argued, in contrast to the positivist view, that most utterances do not have truth values. He then outlined a theory of a category of speech acts that cannot be said to be true or false because they inherently alter the social reality they are describing. Examples include, I do, said at a wedding, I resign, said at a chessboard, and you're fired, said by Donald Trump or anyone else with the power to fire you. What adjective, often used nowadays with a different meaning, especially in discussions of politics and ideology, did Austin apply to these utterances, contrasting them with constitutive utterances? So... 
I 100% know this one as well. I took a course on philosophy of language my junior year of college, and we read the paper about performative utterances. And that's also a word that comes up a lot in discussions of a lot of things. Performativity is a pretty common academic word in a lot of discussions nowadays. So performative utterances, final answer. All right. Let the listeners know that I was nodding along. (laughs) Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it comes, yeah, and like Eve Sedgwick work on performativity, and then just, you know, in general critiques of, for instance, the quizzing community's attitude toward racism. Cough, cough, cough. (laughs) All right. Uh, I do have a bonus for Jenna. What adjective did Austin coin to describe the acts accompanied by performative utterances? Do not confuse it with the effect of the utterance, which Austin assigned a different adjective to. I don't know this. I'll just say change making. All right. Do you remember this, Matt? It's one of like illocutionary or perlocutionary. And I never can get them right. Which one's which? Right. It's part of his distinction between like locutionary acts, which is the actual utterance, the illocutionary act, which is the act accomplished by the utterance and the perlocutionary act, which is the effect of the utterance. A very important distinction to him, no doubt. So which one were you just asking for? Illocutionary. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't get this far in my linguistics major before I dropped out of college, unfortunately. <laughs> Fair I also didn't compete. Yeah, I was, spoiler, I was spoiler a linguistics alert, my, minor my category for, uh, here was linguistics. Oh, was that you said, Ben? I was gonna say I was I also made I also had a pro I didn't complete it, but I minored unsuccessfully in linguistics in college. And I, I did get through an entire oral exam in phonology which was a nightmare of having to just like make the correct sound for every like ipa symbol i survived that somehow but didn't do some other required prereq that just seemed daunting and terrible i mentioned to my father i was thinking of taking a course in linguistics and his response was but you already know spanish (laughs) (laughs) there's a meme there's there was an old meme called like linguist llama where the caption was like you're a linguist how many languages do you speak and its answer is just no (laughs) All right, Jenna and Matt now to try and steal from Ben. What heir to the ANP fortune is thanked in the closing credits of Thunderball for allowing filming on the Bahamas Paradise Island, which he owned and which was later built up into the sprawling Atlantis Resort? His third wife, Diane, who cameos in the film as the woman James Bond dances with before a soon-to-be-killed Fiona Volpe cuts in, also made a cameo as a poker player in 2006's Casino Royale, which was likewise filmed on Paradise Island. So, A and P stands for Atlantic and Pacific, I think, right? Okay. The, um, the supermarket chain that comes up in like the John Updike short story and elsewhere. All um, right. So it's probably not like Wanamaker or Woolworth or any of the families that own any of the other ones. But I don't remember the name of this family. I don't think it's the same thing as Kroger. I think that's a different thing. All right. But for some reason, that name popped into my head. They may just be another supermarket family. Okay. I mean, it it it, it could be Kroger. But I mean, yeah, I'm just I'm just the, trying the to. The Meyer family has the Meyer supermarkets in Michigan, but again, that's a different brand. Yeah. And um, I'm not super hot. I'm I don't have that many more like supermarket family names. All right. I mean. We we might we might just go with might just go with Kroger. 
Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm less sure that that's an actual thing that I didn't just make up than I am at Myers. All right. So I would prefer to do that here. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Let's right. uh, Meyer, Meyer final answer. All right. Yeah. That, that Meyer, I think is unrelated to Fred Meyer, which is a, a chain in this part of the country, which I think is owned by Kroger, which is a real thing, but mm-hmm. not the, not the correct answer to the question. Ben. They were both at least real supermarkets. So good work there. And Peter Meyer is the current Meyer heir who's in Congress. Mm-hmm. He was one of like the 10 Republicans to vote to impeach in the second go-round of impeaching Trump. I don't know about this, though. Yeah, this is definitely, it is in the credits, so it is within the Chase Bond. It is on-screen stuff, technically. But this is, this is beyond things I covered in my Chase Bond obsession as an adolescent. Although I would have loved to have had a sprawling Bahamas island. It's a great scene where Fiona Volpe gets killed. It's a great, great scene on the dance floor there. Great character. Also, I don't think I have anything intelligent to say here. And there's also maybe supermarkets called like Kings. So just some of the sort of common surname. I'm going to say King. All right. Yeah, I, I wrote a, a wiki quiz about the the expanded universe of this man who, like many rich people in the 20th century, sort of had fingers in a lot of different pies and connects to a lot of people. It wasn't as popular or successful as my Marjorie Merriweather Post expanded universe quiz. But um, his name, it's actually his surname is a guess you considered for an earlier question, I think. His name is Huntington Hartford. Oh, okay. Although in the credits of Thunderball, it is actually misspelled as Hunting Dunn Hartford. I couldn't help but notice. Mm-hmm. All right. Jenna. You have a whole island and they don't get your name right. That's <laughs> we've come to these days. But I hope you enjoyed. I, you know, I think this, this category is that I hope you enjoyed someone trying James Bond on your, on your show. Yeah. yeah do it again. I, any, anytime you want. Do definitely. Yeah. And um, okay, I got any of them, but so be it. <laughs> Right. But so, so as I think I kind of mentioned to you, you are not the first person to choose James Bond as a specialist topic. The first person to choose James Bond as a specialist topic was me in, yeah. in, the, <laughs> in the episode where I was a contestant. But I did, I have toyed with the idea of doing an all James Bond episode and I will definitely, oh, I will happily sign up for that. If you need me. Definitely keep you in mind for that one. All right. And yeah, and Paradise Island was previously known as Hog Island before Hartford bought it. I think it was a good rebranding there. There's a lot of like, there are places in the Bahamas where you can like go like play with cute feral pigs. Mm-hmm. I think it's a thing. There's mm-hmm. like, it's a sort of an influencer thing to go play with like pigs who wade in water. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't seem super hygienic, but people the, are- The 30 to 50 on, feral on hogs who, who swarm exactly. on Paradise Island in three to five minutes while, while James Bond plays poker. Exactly. Hey, exactly. Yes. You know, you should, you should be a screenwriter for the next movie. <laughs> All right. Jen and Ben, how to try and steal from Matt. Who played Marlena Dietrich's love interest in 1934's The Scarlet Empress and Shirley Temple's father in 1935's The Little Colonel, in addition to starring in fluent French as Franz Ferdinand in Max Ophuls' 1940 romantic drama From Meyerling to Sarajevo, before heading to Connecticut and taking the U.S. congressional seat freshly vacated by Claire Booth Luce. He later served as governor of Connecticut and U.S. ambassador to Spain, Argentina, and Switzerland, but remains far less famous than his Massachusetts-associated brother and grandfather. Oh, boy. Okay. Mm. Um, there's a lot here. The U.S. politics stuff. So Massachusetts would say brother and grandfather. The most obvious like thing to say out loud is Kennedy of some kind. Yeah, but... They're, they're way more than just a brother, than two members of that family. Yeah, and also um, I don't think 
I, I mean, I think, I think that the, the Kennedy family would have been, would have been later than this guy. So like, I don't, I don't think that his grandfather would have been a, a famous Kennedy because I feel like that's a bit too early for the Kennedy family to have been like that involved in Massachusetts politics. Mm-hmm. Okay. Governor of Connecticut, big day for Connecticut here and U S ambassador to Spain, Argentina, Switzerland, which are all good tennis countries, but not really helpful here. I, I didn't know Franz Ferdinand spoke French or was romantic. No, again, I. Okay, let's see, uh, brother and grandfather. So let's see, around around like what time did the grandfather have been doing stuff in Massachusetts? So, if he later served as a as a governor, it's probably like in the fifties, roughly. Yeah. Um, but then he would have a brother who is also active in probably roughly the same age, probably in yeah. Massachusetts. Although they, they don't say that the brother and grandfather, now that we read this, they're not political necessarily. They're just Massachusetts true, associated. True. So it could be something like, I don't know if there's some sort of athlete who would be from the Red Sox or something in that era, or uh, who else could be Massachusetts associated? Something like, Bruins players or something. I don't know. Those are just sad. This pro sports teams. It's not very yeah. creative. Massachusetts associated. Yeah, there's a lot of people from Massachusetts. It's a problem. Yeah, um, that, is, that is the problem. Millions of them. All right. There's, I mean, no, the Romneys were not really, the earlier Romney, Ben Mitt, was not really Massachusetts. And I think he was more of a Michiganer. Okay. Michigander. I don't think it's Romney. That's too early for Mitt by a lot. Hmm. Yeah, I can keep saying wrong things for a while longer. I don't know how much that will help. Yeah. But... Um, oh, hmm. no, never mind, never mind. I was, I was gonna, I was, I was just trying to think of like grandfather and grandson pairs that are that are famous for whatever reason. And like, I, I thought of like, like William Henry Harrison and Benjamin Harrison, but the time period doesn't match, and I'm not sure they were from Massachusetts. Oh man. Yeah, I, I I don't I don't have anything. Yeah, I don't I don't really either. I can name some I'm trying to think if there's any like athlete like duos of like father father son who played I don't know, like who actually be like grandfather son. Yeah, grandfather, grandson. On like the same in like some Massachusetts sports thing. I just don't know what else it could be. We could say something, I don't know, along the lines of like I don't know, Williams for like Ted Williams or something. That's not a good guess, but it's one of their, yeah. that's, that's a certain name we haven't used yeah, I, yet. I feel, I so feel like, I feel like we've that. had a lot of questions. I feel like we've had a lot of questions today where it's, where it's you and me, you know, trying to, trying to break into one of Matt's subject areas and, and not getting very far. Let the record reflect that we tried. Yeah, we tried. <laughs> yeah, we tried. Uh, we'll say Williams, Yogesh. Yeah, lock it in. I, I do love your spirit. I, I absolutely look for people on this podcast who, you know, appreciate feeling like they tried. Anyway, pass it to Matt. I'm pretty sure I know this. It took me getting through all the hints pretty much in descending order of difficulty to get there. I'm pretty sure I wrote a wiki quiz on Connecticut. If I have the right person, this was the last and most difficult question on that quiz. He names the highway in the southern part of the state. I believe the Massachusetts associated brother and grandfather were Henry Cabot Lodge Sr. and Jr., who opposed the Treaty of Versailles and ran for vice president with Richard Nixon, respectively, in his first failed presidential run. And 
I am going to hope that you can just accept the surname Lodge. And if you need to be more specific, I think I have his first name too, but let's start with Lodge. All right. So, I mean, yes. Yeah, so, so, so to remove the suspense, yes, I will accept Lodge. Okay. Yeah. yeah. There were two places where I thought that Ben and Jenik might have, have hit on it. First, at the very beginning when they said Kennedy, because the, the Lodges and the Kennedy. So basically, one of the Massachusetts Senate, U.S. Senate seats has three times in the 20th century been contested by a Lodge versus either a Fitzgerald or a Kennedy, mm. which is just one of those really interesting facts. But then when you got to the N and you were just throwing out last names, I wondered if you would maybe connect up with Massachusetts and Boston and try and think of like Boston Brahmin types or names, because there's like 30 of them that all the famous people from there have because their families intermarried so much. And then you might have think, oh, Lowell, Cabot, Cabot, Cabot Lodge. I was kind of rooting for you there. These are things that could have happened. I was rooting for us too, unfortunately. (laughs) Just couldn't get there. Is it Joseph? Is that his name? John Davis Lodge. Okay. It was a J. All right. Good job, Matt. Yep. Okay. So Matt and Ben, I'm going to venture a little bit of field of Jenna's category. Oh, we, we have a new position. Okay. Yeah. In sweater. There you go. I hope it's not as uncomfortable for you as Muffy's uh, towel over the face was in episode 13. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So again, I'm, I'm venturing a little bit of field of Jenna's category, but Jenna's category is not Joss Stone. But once I started writing, I was like, you know, why not just tie Joss Stone into all of her questions? So Miss Stone was the only female member of Super Heavy, a super group consisting of her, Eurythmics Dave Stewart, Damian Marley, Bollywood legend A.R. Rahman, and what other man? This man sang lead vocals in Sanskrit on the group's second single, Satyameva Jayate. I mean, this is already a pretty super sounding super group. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know any more... Bollywood legends. So if this is another one, I don't know it. That is on me. I should learn more. The only other sort of like possible Sanskrit leads I'd have are sort of like new agey type people or possibly like I think Philip Glass wrote an opera in Sanskrit about maybe Mahatma Gandhi and he's musical and he might be in a super group with a lot of other people. Does he sing? I, I doubt it. I mean... But, like, George Harrison also did a lot of, like, it could be, like, yeah. I don't I think he might have been dead by then. And Ravi Shankar mm, also yes. probably dead by then. Less sure. I, Harrison, I don't know if, is Ravi Shankar dead? I think he died relatively recently. Okay, George Harrison died so. in 2001. So. Yeah, around the If Ravi Shankar lasted longer than that, I would be fine guessing him, but we'd probably be wrong. Yeah, I don't think it's, I don't think it is George Harrison, but you did open the door, the wide door to a cavern of possible appropriation of people who don't actually speak this language, mm-hmm. um, being the vocalist here. To be fair, very for, few, very few living people speak the language. Mm-hmm. Well, that's also true. But I mean, I even less, you know, plausibly or so. Yeah. Uh, but I guess, yeah, you're right. If no one speaks it, like, you know, anyone can, so you can't offend anybody here by speaking if Latin. You, if you like Shankar better, we could go with that or we could, keep thinking about this but i'm not sure how much yeah i don't really i mean shankar would make sense in that he was also an instrumentalist right so he Mm -hmm. could do other things in this band to be super because jostone i think of primarily as a vocalist i think oh i guess you just played glass offer was called satya graha and that is the same satya word that's right there it means truth okay so if that's another tiny hint that pushes me more in that direction 
I'm going to, I mean, you are doing so much better than me on this show. I'm going to trust you and and just let you All right. pick between your picks. Philip Glass, final answer. All right. Yeah, this is, this. you know, it's a lot of things in the super hard round. These are, you know, difficult, somewhat opaque questions, but I do like seeing kind of, you know, what kind of uh, approaches people take to them. And that was not a guess I was expecting anyone to come up with, but I like the logic behind it. Yeah. All right. Uh, Jenna? Okay, so my my category, which I guess I can reveal now because this is the last question in it, is just 21st century indie rock music. So I'm assuming that this person is an indie rock artist, and you know I I don't I don't know this as as you might have been able to tell from the fact that I you know emerged from my from my sweater cave to look at the question because I was trying to figure it out as well. Okay, let's see. I mean, hmm, super heavy. I mean, I don't know, like indie rock vocalists associated with with heavy stuff. Yeah, I I don't I don't know. I mean, like, yeah, I'm just I'm just like trying to think of I don't know who who might be like which which indie rock singers might be might be singing in Sanskrit. But I I'm just kind of drawing a blank here. Yeah, uh, let's see, let's see, let's see. Okay. I'm just, I'm just like trying to run through, you know, the list of like canonical indie rock bands and see if, you know, any of the, any of the people from them are, you know, like striking me. But, you know, like, I don't, I don't think, I don't think it's, it's any of the, I don't think it's any of the people that I'm thinking of. So, I mean, in the, in the absence of anything better, and because I think this would just be a really entertaining image, I'm, I'm just going to guess Julian Casablancas from The Strokes and lock that in, even though I definitely do not think this was him. All right. Yeah, I did. I did kind of pre-apologize to you for, for going afield of your category because, yeah, I realized that I was kind of veering away from an answer who fit into 21st century indie rock. So I, I apologize for that. But yeah, this is kind of another subcategory of things I like to ask about, which is basically obscure and unexpected things done by incredibly famous people. This is Mick Jagger. No kidding. Oh. Huh. Supergroup gets cool. super er. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. I had I had never heard about this. All right. Uh, yeah, this podcast is meant to be educate in fact it's actually in the education category on Podomatic. So yep, educational. All right. Jenna and Matt now to try and steal from Ben. The, uh, more more content from an I country that's not Italy. The Indian tennis players Mahesh Bhupati, Leander Paez, and Sanya Mirza won a cumulative eight Grand Slam titles as the doubles partner of what woman? So, okay. Oh, it's probably not a fellow Indian tennis player. There's something yeah. weird going on. You don't have to play. Well, in like in the Olympics and stuff, you have to play doubles with someone from your country, but you don't always have to at every time. Yeah. It's not the Olympics. Um, is there anything like, especially interesting about those names? Like Pais is sort of like a Portuguese sounding name. It's like, maybe there's like a Portuguese tennis player. Cumulative eight. I can't, I can't think of, I can't think of any female Portuguese tennis players. Eight is a Um, lot of grand slam titles, right? That's a high number. Um, Yeah. What I don't know is like when somebody's lists the number of Grand Slam titles somebody's won, does that just mean individual or doubles? Like when someone says like Steffi Graf won 28 or Serena Williams won 23, those might not be the exact numbers. Please don't come after me. Like, do they just mean the individual or did that include their doubles wins? 
Because if so, it's got to be someone like that. Because that's mm -hmm. a, eight is a lot. But yeah, I, I, just, I'm I, just I would know it's someone at that level. Are there other people yeah, whose uh, name sounds like, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm not, I'm not coming up with anything. Like the I mean, windiest we, person to guess would be Steffi yeah. Graf, right? That's the, that's the value. Yeah, guess. I mean, yeah, sure. Okay. I mean, so, I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to come up with anything better. Steffi Graf, final answer. All right, Ben. To get one of these. So to answer your question, no, usually the number like Serena 23, those are just singles titles. Serena okay. also won 14 in doubles with Venus and two in mixed doubles to so a total of 39, I guess, all told. But usually, yeah, you just from the like, greatest of all time, usually discussion of just about uh, singles. This person did win five singles Grand Slams before focusing on doubles later in her career, apparently with a lot of Indians and very popular Indian because of this. This is Martina Hingis. Uh, yeah, I think it was in the earlier part of her career, like 2006 or so, she won with Mahesh Bhupati, but the other half mm -hmm. of the, the so-called Indian Express, Leander Pius and Sonia Mirza, those were in that brief stretch in the yeah. 2010s when she won like- She had three kind of chapters. She retired three times. So she retired once in like 2003 with a foot injury, came back in 06, made top 10 again in singles and won with Bhupati and mixed. And then- retired or got had a got banned or yeah, got tested positive for cocaine and right. retired because of that partially or she was going to get banned anyway so she stepped away for a while and then came back a third time and uh yeah what was here's a and and pace and a lovely happy ending on retiring for a competition one is good at i wonder what that feels like <laughs> <laughs> great mystery indeed all right so ben uh, has uh, now gone into second place ahead of jenna and we uh, enter the final cycle of questions. Each of you will get one more specialist and two more chances to steal. Starting now with one of the most complicated questions I've ever written for this podcast. Oh, boy. Hey. So let's find out how it plays. All right. You excited, Jenna? I'm excited. I'm excited to <laughs> yeah. do complicated things. Let's go. All right. In a 2007 paper published in Psychological Science, Yale researchers Louisa Egan, Lori Santos, and Paul Bloom argue that they had found evidence of post-decisional cognitive dissonance in capuchin monkeys by having the monkey choose between two colors of M&M and showing that the rejected color was disfavored in a subsequent choice pitting it against a third color of M&M. However, economist and former IMSA graduate, go Titans, M. Keith Chen argued that there was an alternative explanation for Egan et al.'s findings. It's possible that the monkeys were unsure of their own preferences and thus inferred their preferences on the basis of their initial choice. When John Tierney wrote about this debate in the New York Times in 2008, he invoked the Monty Hall problem, something that baffles me since as far as I can tell, the Monty Hall problem is completely irrelevant to this issue. <laughs> Rather, you know, based on my analysis, and I talked with Chen a little bit about this as well, and I think he would agree with me, Chen's point echoes one raised in a 1967 psychological review paper by an unorthodox social psychologist who subsequently became one of the most controversial figures in the field. So here's something I've never done on this podcast before. I'm giving you three potential questions that you can answer any one of. Ooh. Either name that man who spent most of his career at Cornell, Name the theory he proposed in that 1967 paper, which was subtitled An Alternative Interpretation of Cognitive Dissonance Phenomena, or name or describe the technique used by Mark Zana and Joel Cooper to differentiate between 
these two possible causes of attitude change, cognitive dissonance or the other theory, as described in their 1974 JPSP article titled Dissonance and the Pill. Oh, oh boy. Right. Okay. Is there a fourth question where we can name the M&M colors? I would like that one. <laughs> um, all right. I think that these are all hard. Yes. Again, more literal chances, you know, like we've had before to have different ends and have all of them. All roads don't lead to Rome in the right answer sense. Okay. All right, Joe, do you have any, any, any bells going off here for you? No, not really. I mean, the thing that I feel most, again, I don't think that I am good at this, but I mean, controversial figures in the field of social psychology, there could be, you know, like, oh gosh, it's been a while since I took those classes. Like the guy who did, like Milgram. Is a name oh right yeah, now. I mean, maybe. I think that's probably too well known for this round. Yeah. Like, all yeah. these sorts of, and I don't even think he was at Cornell. No, I think, I, I want to say it was at Princeton. That other one, the other one starts with yeah. a Z, I want to say. The other like f- hmm. classic like. Oh, interest, uh, like... Zimbardo who did the Stanford Prison yeah, Experiment? exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, if okay. it's Zimbardo, um, it's, it's famously not Cornell, so it could be like trick question it's it's like here's why it's not that is why we should get this but it's also ranks really low in terms of most common surnames Zimbardo so it doesn't really fit with heart (laughs) all that strategy has not done us any favors so far I think we can reflect at this point in the game didn't work for us all right Uh, name the phenomenon sorry the theory that you propose okay technique okay Okay, so the I'm I'm just I'm just trying to like make sure I'm like understanding what the question is asking. So the the two possible causes of attitude change. Mm-hmm. So the first possible cause would be that the, the so, monkeys... so I, I I can expand on this if if you want. Okay. So basically, yeah, the cognitive distance explanation would be that when there is a differentiation between one's actions and one's beliefs there's some sort of process that it creates some kind of discomfort in the mind which is then resolved by rationalizing that behavior let's say and okay. so yeah and so therefore sort of shifting one's attitude toward one's behavior okay right. okay yeah the alternative explanation would be that one is not sure of what one's attitude is so one is cognitively inferring it on the basis of observing one's own behavior. Okay, okay. Okay, so that's something that's more, some kind of, it's not conditioning per se, but it's like, gosh, I'm gonna sound so stupid here. I've, I've been too long without being in a classroom for any of these things. <laughs> okay, mm. so maybe maybe the title of that, that 1974 article could be a hint. So the article was called Dissonance and the Pill. So if, if dissonance, if dissonance is the first strategy of, you know, of, of shifting, of, <laughs> I, I can't, I can't quite put this into words, but okay. So then, then the pill would correspond to the second, the second strategy of, okay. Okay. So the, the pill would correspond to the monkeys not knowing what their attitudes were and inferring their preferences on the basis of their natural choice. Okay. Well, I, just, I just didn't know if the pill is the M&M's. Just look yeah. Yeah, that's, that's okay, possible. So I feel confident knowing what M&M's are um, <laughs> throughout. 
<laughs> really I, looked at Eminem? We've yeah. come up with so many amazing possible episode titles so far. That's been my real contribution here. All right. Um, <laughs> I, I I feel like I don't want to waste too much more of Matt's yeah. time from knowing this. Do we, but, do we just um, want to do we just want to say Zimbardo? Yeah. Okay, let's go, do we, let's, we want to say that. Zimbardo let's, even yeah. knowing that it's probably not him? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fair okay. Enough. Let's let's say let's say Zimbardo. Lock that in. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. As, as you kind of intuited, Zimbardo is for most of his career based at Stanford. I, I took a couple of his courses there. And of course, ah. the, pris- the prison experiment was famously carried out there. All right, Matt. Yeah. So I knew it wasn't Milgram because Milgram was at Yale. I actually took an undergrad course with Paul Bloom at one point. Laurie Santos has sort of blown up big since my time there as well. This had me really digging through like the memory banks because when I was at the very outset of my trivia journey playing high school quiz bowl, cognitive dissonance was one of the most frequently asked topics in the social science distribution. And trying to dig through something that makes sense about like monkeys thinking about their own selves and what they just did and who was controversial. I thought about a guy who... I'm not exactly sure how he was related. Now I'm confusing him with a different guy. But I think he was maybe like accused of fabricating research. But I think there is a thing called the self-perception theory. And I believe that the guy who created it is named Daryl Bem. So I'm going to lock in self-perception theory is my answer. Okay, yeah. I think you can kind of intuitively see the link there, right? Between observing your own behavior and drawing inferences on that basis mm-hmm. with self-perception theory. Yeah, just to kind of, so, so that is that is correct. Uh, that's the name of the theory. And uh, yeah, you're correct. Daryl Bem is the person who proposed it, a very unorthodox thinker. So kind of one thing people mistakenly associate him with is the Bem sex role inventory. That was actually developed by Sandra Bem, his ex-wife. But he did come up with the controversial exotic becomes erotic theory of the origins of sexual orientation. And even more controversially, somehow, in 2011, I believe he published a JPSP paper called Feeling the Future, claiming to have found evidence of psi phenomena, in other words, extrasensory perception. And this remains one of the most controversial papers published in a top journal in the the past decade or so. Yeah. For the third part of it, the technique used, and it's used in many different contexts now since being introduced kind of in that paper, is called misattribution of arousal. Basically, the idea is The difference between these two theories is that cognitive dissonance says that you've been made uncomfortable in some way by the conflict between your attitude and behavior, whereas self-perception doesn't assume that. It just assumes you're just kind of observing and drawing an inference. So if cognitive dissonance is correct, you should be able to ameliorate its effects by getting people to attribute their physiological sensation to something other than the conflict between their attitude and behavior. So that is where the pill comes in. It's basically a placebo, kind of following the procedure of the Schachter-Singer experiment from a decade or so earlier. It basically just, you know, you give people a placebo pill and they will misattribute their arousal to that pill. And you can see whether the effect goes away. Cool. All right. So Matt and Ben now to try and steal from Jenna, penultimate question of the game. Final hiding place. What are we going to get here? Full (laughs) back turn. I love it. Yeah, I used to do, to hide my face, I used to do the swivel, but now I have this headset mic, so I can't really swivel while also Mm. wearing the headset. Yeah, go wireless. Yep, yep. All right. The 2008 Doctor Who episode, The Doctor's Daughter, guest star Georgia Moffat, who now goes by Georgia Tennant since marrying David Tennant in 2011, 
However, the title of that episode carries a double meaning if you know that Georgia Moffett's real-life father is whom? So some kind of doctor, presumably. I would um, think so. Is there a person named Stephen Moffat who's like in British stuff? It's not spelled that way, though. We're seeing M-O-F-F-E-T-T. I think that's yeah. M-O-F-F-A-T. British yeah. doctors who had children who are about as old as Georgia Moffat is. So what was that? Probably 60, 1960, 70, 80, somewhere around there. So probably born between 1940 and 60. Yeah, are there any sort of like medical breakthroughs that happened in Britain? I mean, it could also be like a that. PhD. It could. So like who else has those? Stephen Hawking, like other famous, like like Richard Dawkins, I guess, probably has a PhD in biology. I mean, that's sort of more medical-esque. I'm trying to think if there's anybody who's like famously a doctor who's been like doing, who's been like the Fauci for Britain during like COVID, for example, Ooh. or. Um, I'm going like, to interrupt for just one second. Uh, my, my AirPods just died. I'm going to switch to a different pair of headphones. Okay. Do you need us to pause? We can ramble for long enough. I think inanely okay. that she show up plenty of time. Okay. Because I can't, I don't, I, I but okay, I trust yeah. you to so, be more on topic. Yeah. I don't I, know like the British surgeon general would be, or like that. But what were like, what were some, what were some of the like medical, the ways that people with doctors, let's just stick the idea of like, medical like the Salk vaccine was, he was American, I think. Salk and Sabin, like the polio people. Yeah, John Salk, I think, was American. That's, a, that's like around the right era. One of those two was Scottish and the other one was Canadian. And David Tennant is Scottish, I think. Mm-hmm. He's a good Scottish accent. Yeah, so I think maybe he's it's Scottish. like Alexander Fleming, but he would be pretty old. I mean, people have kids when they're pretty old. But Especially in Britain. If we're thinking like Scottish and medicinal, that's the best thing I have. Yeah, that would make sense to me. That, yeah, he discovered that in like the 30s or 40s. So he would have had to be significantly older than that when he had... Right, because assuming that, assuming that Georgia Moffat's roughly the same age as David Tennant, David Tennant's probably what, like 50? 50, a little bit under 50 yeah. right now, maybe? Late, Mid-late 40s? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so maybe something I, a little bit I don't think we have a better answer, that. though. What about like the, the like people who did something more like I don't know, like a genetics line of things or uh, like Craig Venter did the Human Genome Project? I think he's American as well. Is there like Watson, and, what, what, were Watson and Crick? They're British. They were at least one of them was James Watson was I believe or okay. British and racist. Mm-hmm. Sure, I'm less sure about the other ones. I I kind of like that. They would have been a little younger because they were, I think, in their early, they were like late 20s, early 30s when they did the DNA thing or when they took Rosalind. Yeah, Franklin. I think age-wise, they make sense. I don't know if like they're as doctory. I mean, they're probably yeah. at least like PhDs in biology. At least honorary. At least have a billion honoraries, yeah, at this point. Yeah. So, um, although maybe yeah. should I be I like Watson better racist, than Fleming because he has a better chance of being somewhat younger. He was still alive by 2007 when he made that horrible racist comment. But he was in his, he was really old at that point. So, okay. Do you want to go, Watson? I don't have yeah. any other guests. So, all right. Cool. Watson, final answer. All right. I did. I did like how you kind of dodged the Stephen Moffat hurdle, which was a attract attractive red herring there. Jenna. Yeah. 
So Georgia Moffat's father, birth name, and I'm not sure whether it's still his legal name, was Peter Moffat, but he is more famous under the stage name that he had to adopt because there was already a Peter Moffat in the British Actors Union, I believe. He adopted the stage name of Peter Davison and played the doctor on TV from, I believe, 1984. Uh, that kind of doctor. That kind of doctor. Yeah. Interesting. Peter Davison, final answer. Yeah, in England, there are three ways you can become a doctor, at least MD route, the PhD route, and the being cast in Doctor Who route. Yeah. MD, PhD, BBC, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, and yeah, I think you, you have also avoided adding in an X. Sometimes uh, Davidson is kind of an uncommon last name. Davidson is more common. So I think sometimes people... When he was first cast as the Doctor, Doctor Who magazine announced it on the front page as Peter Davidson is the Doctor. Pete Davidson as the Doctor. <laughs> I'd watch that. <laughs> they 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 finally they finally atoned for their mistake in I think like 2007 where he returned for like a one-off charity special and they finally spelled his name right on the cover. That's interesting though because Huntington Hartford's name was also misspelled with an added D. There's two more of these and there's uh, only connect in it. Uh. <laughs> All right, final question of the game. I think that that gives Jenna back second place, but she may not have it for long. I'll find out. All right, Jenna and Matt, now to try and steal from Ben on the final question of the game. So as I mentioned in episode 14, the only person to win the Eurovision Song Contest twice as a performer was Johnny Logan, known offstage as Sean Sherrard. Sherrard also earned a share of a third Eurovision title in 1992, when a song he wrote, Why Me, took first prize after being performed by what Belfast-born singer? This woman who competed in Ireland's National Song Contest four times as a member of CHIPS before deciding to go solo had previously been runner-up at Eurovision 1984 with the song Terminal 3. Her 1992 victory makes her to this day the oldest woman to win Eurovision as a performer. I think. I didn't. I couldn't quite verify that, but I'm just going off what Wikipedia says. Sounds plausible. Only Irish singers I know are like Enya and whoever led the Cranberries. Dolores O'Riordan? Yeah, or um, Sinead O'Connor, I guess, also. Yeah, um, but she was I don't, I don't think young it's, in the 90s. Yeah, I don't think it's any of those. So I, I do, at least I'm pretty sure that this was this was part of that period in the 90s where Ireland won the contest like four out of five years in a row. Okay. And I, 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 know, I know enough about Eurovision to know that that happened. I don't know enough about Eurovision to remember what any of the winners' names were in that period. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think I'm necessarily going to be able to to pull this straight out it's northern ireland belfast then moved to ireland ireland okay hmm okay born in born in belfast yeah i i don't i don't know i think i think this might just be one where it's not necessarily possible to puzzle it out from outside knowledge i mean do we do we want to just guess an Irish surname or, or, do, or do we think there's a chance we can still puzzle this out somehow? I don't think so. O'Brien, maybe? Sure, O'Brien. We'll Let's homage right to the Santa Monica trivia scene there. O'Brien, final answer. Definitely appreciate the homage, but unfortunately not the correct answer. Ben? So this person, I guess I would have probably first seen in the contest, I think it was in 07, where she read the votes for Ireland and the UK had gotten no points to the first like 
60% of the voting maybe, and things were getting a little bleak on the BBC broadcast and then Ireland being good neighbors are most likely people who are, you know, British people with Irish SIM cards or something in Northern Ireland voting and gave them like five or six points or something and got them off the, off the, off the zero, off the null points, null point. And then, uh, and then Malta out of nowhere came and gave them 12, just maximum points the very next round. There was hysteria and seven for scooch. Anyway, mom boy saying, oh, this is Linda Martin. Who was the person who delivered that good news to Britain that day? And yeah, who did Terminal Three and Why Me and set off? Right, as Shanna said, very good. Run they won ninety two. They won again ninety three. With uh, that was by uh, Neve Cavanaugh, I think was the second one. And then Rock and Roll Kids that do have by two people's names. I don't remember. And then Norway won one. And then they came back and won in ninety six with The Voice by Amar Quinn. So Linda Martin was the first one to get the ball rolling for the Irish dynasty, which really they only won so much largely because they're one of the few countries allowed to sing in English at that point. It was just, you had to sing in your official language for most of the nineties and Ireland had a big advantage as did the UK who also overperformed in that decade. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. That was when Katrina and the waves emerged from mm-hmm. their very, very long obscurity to suddenly take the title in 97, I think. Yeah. So Jenna and Ben were trading back and forth second place there. Uh, I thought I thought Jenna might be able to to hold on to it when she had that uh, knowledge about Ireland. I was pretty, I was impressed. And it, we are recording this on Eurovision week. So happy Eurovision. It's probably come out after this week, but happy Eurovision week to all those who celebrate. I hope that it was. So who are you um, rooting for, Ben? Oh, it's a good question. I don't I think it's a really bad year, actually, in terms of the field. Really? I, yeah. yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's great. I'm hoping that Latvia gets through to the final. They got put in a yeah. rough spot, but um, yeah, they're. I, I, like... I appreciate just going, you know, pure chaos mode out of the gate with their song, you know. Exactly. Um, <laughs> it's gonna be I'm, an inter- yeah, interesting show, but I don't know. Yeah, I'm I'm Team Serbia personally. Oh, that's that's a good pick. That's that's good taste. Serbia yeah. is one of my favorites for sure. They wrote an article in the Serbian press about my comments about their Eurovision act, which is weird. Mm. Um, yeah. Yes. Anyway. But anyway, we're following Serbia after the Djokovic Australia saga. That's that's uh, very impressive. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, we finish. Matt had it pretty well sealed up with 41.2, followed by Ben taking second there at the end with 28.2 and Jenna very close behind at 24.1. And so now, again, we'll finish with basically, you know, you each can make a final statement. We'll go in descending order of score. So third place gets the last word. And basically you can talk about anything you want about the game, about the world at large, any combination of those things in any proportion. You can plug anything you want to as long as it, basically as long as it's not too long or offensive and I get to determine what's offensive, it'll be kept in. So we'll, uh, we'll begin with Matt. I just want to thank Yogesh for hosting. I don't know if that much that's wildly controversial about the world at large or the quizzing scene to say in this venue at this time. Uh, I hope people enjoyed this look at sort of the thinking processes that people go through when they figure out how to answer a question that may be sort of daunting to them and can maybe put some of those strategies to use in their own quizzing lives. Well said. Yeah, that's definitely one of the things that I, I am trying to accomplish with this podcast. All right, Ben. Yes, thank you. So congrats to Matt for his huge triumph here. And it was a delight watching his brain just as a fan of his for many years and, you know, new teammate. And hopefully we get to spend some more time conquering all comers together before he shoves off to Chicago. Thank you to Tio Gesh again for, for doing all this bespoke trivia for us. It's very cool labor of clearly a lot of passion and love for the world and art of trivia to be doing this. And also thank you again 
or thanks on behalf of my, my friend, Louisa Thomas, who was featured on a past episode. I sent you that message. I sent her a clip from that episode. She was very excited. So I know I'm sure hopefully there's somebody, I'm not sure who, maybe Linda Martin will hear this someday. Who knows? You know, somebody out there, although she's probably been more of a trivia answer more frequently than, uh, than Louisa Thomas had been. But anyway, thank you for what you do. And you bring people, you know, happiness through these travails. So hopefully you know that and that is appreciated. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Jenna. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll echo what the other two have said. Thank you for hosting Yogesh. It's been a, a delight to be on the show. I, I enjoy listening to every episode when it comes out. Congrats to Matt on the victory. Congrats to Ben on second place. As, as for plugs, I mean, if, if anybody listening is also a, a fan of indie music, as I, as I am, as indicated by my category, some friends of mine have a podcast called the Indie Heads Podcast. It's a very fun listen in general, but they're about to start a series called Best New Pod, where they listen through all of the tracks that were given the Best New Track distinction by Pitchfork in the 2010s and sort of, you know, examine 2010s culture through that lens. It's, it's promising to be a pretty fun time, I think. So, you know, go check them out. I'm hopefully going to be a guest on an episode or two in the coming months. But yeah, Indie Heads podcast, go check it out. Yeah. Trans rights, reproductive justice now. Keep on fighting. All right, yes. None, none of those last sentiments I will judge offensive and they will be kept in. <laughs> has anyone ever said anything that you had to take out in the final words? Now I'm curious. Actually, no, no one has. Okay. It's a yeah. challenge for future guests there. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I always, I just want to reserve that option just in case, you know. Yeah. All right. Uh, This is, this is the third episode I'm recording in four days. So a backlog will not as huge as the backlog that I worked through over the past year, but a little bit of a backlog will build up, which I will work through over the summer as I finish my MBA, you know, so it'll be a a little bit. I do not think it will be as dramatically long a time as like, you know, Ben had to wait for his first episode, but um, (laughs) I'm hoping. It was a fun surprise when it finally came, I will say. (laughs) And I had a friend who was listening, who they were were talking about the Oscars that were coming up. And he was listening for it and I was like, oh no, those aren't this year's Oscars. <laughs> last year's Oscars that still haven't happened. That's the time of this recording in this episode. Mm. Right, right. So I'm hoping for a more expedited schedule than that, certainly. This has been episode 17 of season two of Recreational Thinking with Yogesh Routh. Thanks for listening.